Oh, let's go. So that's not the Misfits, that's the Ramones. Welcome to the Last Three Rows of Horror <laughs> podcast. Uh, today we're continuing our conversation about the Misfits and the influences on their songs. Mike here with... The guy that sings the wrong song. That's right. <laughs> Get your punk rock correct, goddammit. And... Sam. All right, man. We're, today we're going to talk about some more... Uh, old horror movies that influenced the misfits this is part two horror business sam take it away yeah we're gonna talk about some uh some horrible stuff on this uh some splatter films maybe some zombies all all that jizz damn (laughs) so uh can can i uh read a list of uh some bands first yeah definitely so ladies and gentlemen i'm gonna read you a list of bands that uh i personally think is some of like the best horror music going on right now and has been over the years this is punk rock horror rock horror punk psycho billy uh horror billy uh all these bands fit into these (laughs) categories so and a lot of them surprisingly sound identical to the misfits so if you if you like the misfits then you'll enjoy uh blitz kid the necromantics the meteors tiger army Ghoul Town, Creep Show, Zombie, The Midnight Syndicate, Goblin, of course, Calabrese, Grave Robber, uh, who else? Harley Poe. And we're going to get into later on uh, Rob Zombie, Alice Cooper, King Diamond, Screaming Jay Hawkins. So there's a, a brief little list for you. Check out those bands. Again, if you like Misfits, if you like uh, that rockabilly stand up bass, uh, like, a, like a trio, then you'll enjoy those bands. Yeah, Calibris is cool. I got into them this week a little bit. Uh, they're kind of like, uh, have they you ever heard of a... sound like a, Misfits. Yeah, have a band called the Lillingtons? Or maybe like Teenage Bottle Rocket? I think I've heard of Bottle Rocket. A little bit like them, too. Yeah, a little bit of uh, Alkaline Trio thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is another cool, like, horror, kind of a horror but, punk But, yeah, the lyrics are about horror movies. Yes. I, I got to ask you a question, Mikey. Mm-hmm. I, I'm half Italian, you know that, and I'm Calabrese. So am I a weird old misfit guy? You are a misfit. <laughs> You got to start growing your hair out so you could do a, a devil lock. Yeah. Like that. I just thought of I just thought of uh, dye your hair jet I just, black. I just, I just thought of Stray Cats because they were rockabilly and now we got yeah. horrorbilly. Oh yeah, horrorbilly <laughs> is a thing, man. It's it's huge. Yeah, we're there's there's talk a, about it a little I think bit. A, it's a local band or they they tour all over, but uh, the Coffin Cats. I haven't heard of them before. Oh, they're pretty cool, man. Coffin Cats. Yeah, also, uh, another um, ghost. Yeah, yeah, ghost. absolutely. A little bit of uh, King well, Diamond dish. Yeah, they're really into Satan, <laughs> or at least they claim to be. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, just to cover some uh, sources for today's episode, some good books. Uh, this music leaves stains: the complete history of the Misfits by James Green Jr. Also, uh, going to pieces by Adam Rockoff. We've used that before. Also, um, Hammer Films: an exhaustive bi- filmography by Tom Johnson and Deborah Del Vecchio. That's a hot name, by the way. Del Vecchio Deb- or Del Vecchio. Debbie Delvetch. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so also uh, The Book of the Dead, Complete History of Zombie Cinema by cool. Jamie Russell's awesome uh, complete history of the whole zombie cinema. Mm. Also um, The Price of Fear, the film career of Vincent Price in his own words by Joel Eisner. Neat. It's an awesome book. There's uh, some some great stories in that book, yeah. There's one where uh, they talk about Vincent Price was a big uh, like art guy. It just popped into my head, by the way. There was a story. Uh, one of the directors went and saw him. He's like, Hey, I got some rewrites on the script. I'll bring it to your hotel room for you. And this guy goes to like this, you know, gives the cab driver the directions to Vincent Price's hotel. 
So they're driving there, and it's like in the seedy part of town or something. It's almost <laughs> like that scene from Spy. Have you seen that with Melissa McCarthy? I haven't seen Spy, no. Like a guy's like getting blown by a prostitute in the alley right outside the thing. There's a blood stain in the hallway. The like the fucking desk clerk is nodding off. It's the <laughs> it's other like, side of the tracks, huh? And they're like, they're like, he's like, Vincent, why the fuck are you staying here? Like, you don't even have a bathroom in this room. You have to share a bathroom with all these like drug addicts and stuff. He's like, listen, motherfucker, you're paying me. I'm spending this money on art. I don't care about a hotel room for the week, dude. Fuck you. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he was a big art dude. Cool. I could I could picture him talking about art. I could picture him talking about anything because of his, his awesome near voice for narration. <laughs> All right. Well, the Misfits uh, were certainly pioneers of the horror punk genre, but horror and music has been melded together since the early days of both horror and music. Popular musicians in the United States have been crafting material with variance, varying supernatural themes since the Great Depression, and the same time as uh, when Hollywood began offering classic horror movies such as Dracula and Frankenstein, but with not much regularity. So uh, jazz titan Louis Armstrong famously crafted a spooky swinger called Skeleton in the Closet for the 1936 Bing Crosby film Pennies from Heaven. Uh, Skeleton is noted for a spoken word opening by Armstrong that ends on a humorous mispronunciation. Boy, don't you go in there. Don't you know that house is haunted? (laughs) (laughs) I found a clip of that here. Check this out. Boy, don't you go in there. Come out of there, boy. Don't you know that house is haunted? (laughs) (laughs) I love his pronunciation. Yeah. I also uh, found a little clip from the movie Pennies from Heaven from 1936. This is fu- I like the way he dances and moves around. Listen to this. There's an old deserted mansion on an old forgotten road where the better ghosts and goblins always hang out. One night they threw a party in a manner a la mode. And they cordially invited all the gang out. At a dark, bewitching hour, when the fun was loud and hearty, a notorious wallflower became the life of the party. The spooks were having their midnight flame. Mary Megan was in full swing. They shrieked themselves into a cheerful trance. When the skeleton in the closet started to dance. I love that. Yeah. That's Louis Armstrong? Yeah, Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, but but again, but again, there we go. Black and white films. Black and white films, man. They make their mark and they make things a lot scarier, creepier, and whatever else is underneath that. Also, I know this <laughs> we're an audio medium, but just for the guys here, I love how in the back in the day they dance like a <laughs> just arms up in the air, shaking their head. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're feeling the spirit. <laughs> and, and 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 you know what, Mikey? If I could take a second, Sammy, could we go back uh, two or three slides with the Vincent Price thing? I got. I, I want to point out something. It's so so awesome, my nephew. Uh, the one after this. So uh, Ann Baxter, Ann Baxter, beautiful woman. She actually played a villain on the Batman series with Adam West, and she was like. I, I, I want to say her name was Olga in the in the Cossacks or something like that. Hilarious, great actress. Look at that, Betty Davis, uh, Jack Nicholson, and I just watched 
the Omega Man the, uh, the other day with Charlton Heston. Yeah. Did you two guys realize? Sal's talking about the Price of Fear, by the way. That yes. Vincent Price. Sorry about biography. that. Sorry, yeah. sorry about yeah, that. Just audience. Some of the interviews. Pr- in price, it. Price of Fear. Uh, the, the 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 you know people that were in it. Uh, I'm sorry, voices and whatever in it. Uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, I got I gotta say that guy is one of the most underrated actors of horror, sci-fi, and motion pictures. That guy was in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, he did that, a little bit of everything. That guy, that guy was in, uh, was he in the airport movies, in Earth, both airport and earthquake movies? I don't recall. Yeah, he was in, he was in both of those. He was in the mag- most magnificent films, in my eyes, which was Planet of the Apes. Vincent he, Price? Charlton Heston. Oh, oh, oh. Charlton Heston. He he just did every remarkable, everything that man touched was gold. Everything. And it's funny, my nephew, thank God for him, and this in this this movie called Price of Fear. Um, and it's a it, book. It, it, I'm sorry, it's a book. I'm sorry. And Charlton Heston's name is mentioned. I think he is by far one of the greatest icons of of uh, theater, theatrical uh, movies and and. Uh, you know, just everything. He did everything. Did you like his work in Bowling for Columbine? Never seen it. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Never seen it. Well, he's got to uh, have one. He's got to have one. But that, come on, I'll tell man. you what, that is a documentary worth watching. I understand that, but I'm telling you. He's like, sometimes some he... kids got to die. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> like I said, I was, I was watching The Omega Man, which is actually uh, where Will Smith's movie, um, help me out here, Sammy. Oh, that one. Um uh, uh, I am legend. I am, I am legend, yeah. which was was a takeoff of the Omega Man. Yeah, written by Richard Matheson. Right, and and Charlton Heston did a magnificent job in that movie. And I'm telling you that guy's uh, uh, room of the, uh, uh, his, I'm sorry, his area of, of movies was so so fantastic and and a great actor. I got to give it to Charlton Heston, man. Well, the original, based off the book, I am legend was uh, the Vincent Price film. Last, uh, last, last Man, Man on Earth. Earth, right. right. They, right. Were, they and, were vampires. And, right. So, right. So it was Last Man on Earth, The Omega Man, yeah. and then I Am Legend. Yes. They're all really, and which they're supposed to come out with another I Am Legend uh, 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 movie come out too. Yeah, why not? Thank you, Sammy. Didn't mean uh, to interrupt. I hope not. Oh, <laughs> I should let like, that go. You didn't like I Am Legend? You didn't like it? Was, it was all right. Oh, I mean, dude, I didn't I really like awesome. the didn't CGI. Like the, yeah, I didn't really like the CGI. I know, Mikey, you didn't like CGI. I know, but but uh, I'm just I'm just speaking, you know, for for myself and my my taste. But uh, again, man, Charlton Heston, the movies he made were just all A plus in my eyes. Yeah. You didn't say. You always say magnificent. Magnificent. <laughs> mm-hmm. You like to do from uh, what was it? The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, like magnificent. <laughs> when he's, uh, from Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! Can All I take right. Mikey? Can mm. I take one more second? I don't care. You, you remember when I told you two guys I was doing the cartoons of uh, the most uh, brutally uh, guy in the world has to be uh, Charlie Brown? <laughs> well, I've got an adaptation added to that at the end of that, which will be kind of like a sequel to it. Do you know what it's going to be about? What's that? You want to ask me, Sammy? Is it Charlie Brown school shooter? Nope. It is a great. It's going to be a great uh, documentary film that I'm going to investigate and do. It's called The Tree Eye Monkey vs. Who? Rawhead Rex. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say snake in a leather jacket. <laughs> this seems like a big edit right here. This is <laughs> this is going to this is going to make Ed Wood look like Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Come on, you don't think you and the audience want to be interested in seeing a Tree Eye Monkey vs. Rawhead Rex? Uh, it's coming straight to Tubi, yeah. 2027. Yeah, that's where I'm gonna put it on. Uh, 
<laughs> All right. So moving on. Uh, one year after uh, uh, Pennies from Heaven, Mississippi-bred blues guitarist Robert Johnson stoked the embers of a future legend by suggesting he once allowed Satan to tune his instrument at a dusty crossroads in exchange for Johnson's soul by recording Me and the Devil Blues for Columbia Records. like this that, that, that makes me want to smoke reefer and watch the devil's reject <laughs> drink some bourbon for sure but you know what I would, if i was robert johnson i'd be a little mad i'm like if i sold you my soul you're gonna give me some i would want some like i would want today's progressive metal skills yes. you know what i'm saying oh, yeah. like in 1940 i'm going <laughs> shred, shred like steve by and crossroads you know <laughs> I'm like, fuck your blues, dude. I'm, I'm doing scales. <laughs> Sweet pickings and shit. <laughs> arpeggios. I've got, I've got a, I got a V, an electric V. Back in the day, they didn't even have electricity. <laughs> I just want to be called Flying a reefer head. I just want to be called a reefer head. Watch out for that reefer head. He's watching double rejects. Oh, yeah, this is all those blues guitarists smoking yeah. reefers. Yep. <laughs> so, yes, so no, yes, no one art, artist before him fully embodied the term horror until the sudden 1956 appearance of a bellowing bluesman screaming jay hawkins and his cathartic unhinged bump i put a spell on you everybody's covered this i put a spell on you because of my We're talking CCR, fucking Marilyn Manson, 
so many people have covered this song and they don't do it justice. The original is the best. That's because when he, he recorded this, by the way, in Chicago, and he was yeah. pissed drunk at the time. He doesn't even remember <laughs> recording this song. Awesome. Okay, I got, I got, I got, I got to ask: Was this kind of music an underground thing? Well, I mean, if it was recorded in Chicago, blues was huge in Chicago in the late fifties, early sixties. No, I understand that because my my father was a big blues fan, blues fan. But but you know, hearing this type of music, I mean, what, it was, was different it? for sure. I mean, yeah, Screaming Jay Hawkins was, was weird for oh, the yeah. time. Like yeah. a lot of his music is so funny he because put, he's just he'll just be going. He would put like a giant bone through his nose, and he was acting like a voodoo priest. He would like rise up from a coffin when he would perform live. Like he he took it to another level. I mean, I mean, I could totally see like him being just like a lounge act. No, dude. Well. You know, like, okay, a black entertainer in the 50s and 60s, they weren't doing giant arenas. Right. Yeah. That's why I say, was this Lounge like... act, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, I like his shoes and jacket. I got a yeah. pair just like that. He was stylish. He also yeah. had a, uh, a, like, a skull cap scepter that he nicknamed Henry. It was a, <laughs> uh, it was a skull. Henry would often be seen with a lit cigarette clenched between his teeth, by the way. <laughs> Man, these cigarettes will kill you. <laughs> yeah, and like we talked about with Criswell on the last episode, uh, Screamin' Jay would begin numerous concerts by rising from a rickety coffin. Nice. <laughs> it was awesome. Nice. Yeah, many fans bought a Hawkins stick hook, line, and sinker, believing that the Ohio native was actually a foreign-born practitioner of voodoo. Yep. Yeah, he played that part pretty well. Wow. <laughs> A lot, like of his, his, a lot of his songs, he's like snorting like a pig. It's 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 hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he also has a like a maroon cape that he wore everywhere. Yeah, he wore a cape, <laughs> and he also had the kind of the uh, like the ska sensibility. And this one, he's got a checkerboard like the pockets on his uh, his jacket are checkerboards. I see that, and he's got the uh, the leopard print shoes. I want those Ooh. shoes. <laughs> All right. Well, several years after the release of "I Put a Spell on You," an uh, aspiring actor from Massachusetts co-authored and recorded what is arguably the most popular horror rock anthem of all time. Bobby Pickett, desperately wanting to get in on the twist dance craze, utilized the keen impression of Frankenstein star Boris Karloff. He often did merely for his friends' amusement to bring the poppy mad scientist lament monster mash in 1962 you gotta love this love the monster mash (laughs) so uh released that august pickett's monster mass featured an assembly of studio musicians to forever be known as the crypt kickers and wrote its goofy waltzing refrain into a number one hit by october locking pickett into a profitable career as one of novelty's music's most beloved icons let's get a little bit of the monster mash a mash I was working in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from the slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash He did the mash It got on in a flash He did the mash He did the monster mash From my laboratory in the Master bedroom with a vampire's beam. The ghouls all came from their humble abodes. Get a jolt from my electrode. They did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. Each got on in a flash. They did the monster mash. So, Misfits cover that song. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna and play that. In I a think second, uh, I think Jerry sings it. So was this Jerry only? Yeah. Was this was this part of the recording for uh, Mad Monster Mash or what was that movie with the Oh Mad Rose Monster Stiller? Party? Mad Monster Party. Yeah. Boris Karloff. Boris, was, Car- that? Boris yeah. Karloff. was it was that was this the opening? I don't remember. I remember seeing that 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 uh, animation. It was hilarious. But was this the opening song for it? I no, I think I this came no? out. It came this came it? out. This came out earlier. Yeah, it came out earlier. I, I, I thought. I actually thought this was related to that movie somehow. Because so I was a little kid. It's I don't Mad remember. Monster Party with the puppets. Yes. Yes. Never yes. seen it. Yes, Phyllis Diller was hilarious awesome in there. A great movie, great movie. That's a fun one to play on, like, I don't know, around Christmas for yeah, some reason. Maybe yeah. it's just the puppet aspect and, of yeah, it. Yeah, and, and Boris Karloff was one of the original voices in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I knew that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Bobby uh, scored again in 1975 with the Star Trek spoof, Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> less popular were Pickett's uh, sorted mash sequels, such as the Christmas-themed Monsters Holiday from December 1962, um, a hip-hop reworking called Shock the Body, Monsters Rap in uh, 1985, and the 2005 global warming redo Climate Mash. It's kind of a one-note one, uh, one uh, artist right Is there, Bobby Pickett. Is this guy still Pickett. alive? I've... I'm not sure if he's still alive. I think that might have just been uh, someone else that did that. Yeah, so uh, you guys want to hear a little bit of the monster rap? Shock the body? Yes. (laughs) The run DMC. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Head. Yeah, shock the body. Shock the body, body. I love it. That was great. So uh, the original um, endured so much so that it was adapted into a feature film in 1995 starring Pickett himself alongside the catch-all likes of Full House's Candace Cameron, Jimmy Dynamite Walker, and John Waters' accomplice Mink Soul. Mink Stoll, yeah. Yes. I haven't, this is the only movie we probably ever will talk about on this show that I will not see. No. This has got to be horrible. This looks, it looks fucking horrible. Straight to, not even straight to VHS, this is like straight to Walmart. Well, I mean, you lost me with Candace Cameron. You just, you'd lost me. I mean, her and her brother. Uh, do people watch their shit? Just the cover looks horrible. I know, I know. I mean, <laughs> just fucking Lifetime movies and I, Christian I gotta, movies. I, I, I bet you this movie, I bet you this wouldn't even make Tubi. <laughs> no. <laughs> this almost seems like it's one of those, who was the other guy from that show? Uh, Kirk Cameron? Yeah, her or, brother. No, that was, yeah, yeah, he was in Growing Pains. Yeah. He was yeah, in Growing, oh, growing pains, pains. I'm sorry. Yeah, that guy. It seems like that. It comes out in that guy's Christian bookstores. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Well, not many people know this, but um, after Leo Carpazzi first recorded the Monster Mash in 1962, the label rewrote his lyrics, claiming the monster imagery was too graphic, and Bobby Boris Pickett re-recorded it. Here's a clip of that early version. From my laboratory, I heard quite the racket. Deep in the castle, the vampires jacked it. The zombies all fucked in the graveyard grass. Wolfman wolfed down Frankenstein's ass. <laughs> they did the monster fuck. The monster <laughs> it was a graveyard they fuck. Did the fuck. <laughs> Those monsters sucked and Yeah, fucked. so we're joking, of course. This is funny or die, they by the way. They did the monster fuck. <laughs> the beasts all fucked as the orgy. 
orgy spread. Bigfoot gave the headless horseman head. Swamp thing jacked off in the castle moat. While Dracula gagged from the jizz in his throat. The fucking was wet. There was spooge like mad. Igor decided to fuck his own dad. Oh, come on. The mummy let out a horny moan. When Medusa's bare tits turned his dick to stone. <laughs> They did the monster. I love the, in this video, this funny or die, by the way, the same, the, this way this guy just gets angrier and angrier throughout the whole the song. The song. <laughs> Why is he so mad? monster fuck. But Frankenstein's pride was the biggest slut. Dracula got balls deep in her butt. She got titty fucked by a giant spider. Jizz made the streaks in her hair much whiter. She fucked every monster. Come one, come all. Her three holes were filled like a bowling ball. And while monsters all fucked his undead bride, Frankenstein just jacked off and cried. <laughs> now you can monster fuck. I've never seen that. This is fucking hilarious. Those monsters suck and they fuck. Yeah, I came across that in my, oh my, in my research and I was like, I gotta put that in there. That is hilarious. <laughs> Just a dirty monster match. It is. <laughs> but that shows you how, you know, impactful this song has been. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. So like we were, Mike was also saying, the Misfits also did it on uh, their uh, recently released uh, Project 1950 album. Check this shit out. That's Jerry. That's Jerry singing. Yeah, Jerry only. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they sound so much like the Ramones. Don't say that. I'm sorry. They do. <laughs> I know. Wrong band. Right. <laughs> wrong band, Sal. I'm just saying. I was telling Mike before. Um, if you want, they say if you want hand claps, you go for the Ramones. If you want oohs and ahs, you go for uh, the Misfits. Nose and ohs. All right. Well, there was also around this time a flood of macabre pop songs revolving around grisly automotive deaths of teenagers. A reflection of our uh, reaction to the dangerous youth street racing trends of this period. So beginning with Mark Dining's uh, 1959 Teen Angel and climaxing with 1964's Dead Man's Curve by Jan and Dean and the Shangri-La's leader of the pack. Great oldies. Yeah. So these entries into the musical canon, um, which became affectionately known as Splatter Platters, <laughs> dramatically detailed young love cut short by reckless driving, sometimes complete with stomach-churning car crash sound effects. Uh, the popularity of Splatter, platter, splatter Platters proved the, to the American public, despite wanting to appear outli outwardly normal, that we had a remarkable and wide morbid streak behind us. Mm. Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of those uh, car crash sound effects real quick. Well, the last thing I remember, Doc, I started to swerve, and then I saw the Jag slide into the curve. I know I'll never forget that horrible sight. I guess I found out for myself that everyone was right.
awesome. Creepy. It makes you look at the song a little differently. Have you ever heard Twisted Sister cover Leader of the Pack? Mm, no, I don't oh, think it's, I have. It's, it's pretty good. Really? I mean, for Twisted Sister, yeah. Oh, I'll give it a listen. It ain't bad. Why not? So uh, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, the Monster Mash, and the Splatter Platters all paved the way for a raspy Detroit singer, Vincent Furner, who... Uh, Furnier. Furnier, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, who adapted... I'm the worst at names. <laughs> <It's all right. laughs> but, so he adapted the stage name Alice Cooper in 1968 and used his pensions for classically spooky theatrics to transform his rock and roll music into the ultimate shock-laden stage show. And uh, by 1971, the Alice Cooper group was selling out venues across the country... Uh, with a concert experience that included bloody doll parts, stage fights, and the shaggy-haired, mascara-smeared singer's own pretend electrocution. And decapitation. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah I, just, I just seen him at the, the convention. He was at Days of the Dead. Was he really? Oh, How yeah. do you look? Oh. Old, but you know, still going strong. I've seen him live once. Uh, awesome. He's just, just like... looking scarier and scarier yeah. as he gets older. <laughs> yes. Do you know how he came up with the, the name? Alice no. Cooper, it was on a Ouija board. He was playing around with it, and it just it spelled out a name. Spooky. Okay, that's creepy, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the Alice Cooper group was responsible for such creepy entries as uh, Dead Babies and the Ballad of Dwight Fry. Um, if you don't know, Dwight Fry is uh, the American actor uh, best known for his portrayals of neurotic, murderous villains in several classics, uh, universal horror films such as Renfield and Dracula or Fritz and Frankenstein. Real creepy looking dude. That's on uh, Welcome to My Nightmare, I think. I think that song's on there. Um, you Ballad of the White Fry? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think Dead Babies is on, what's it, A Killer. Killer, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, yet it was a very real act of gore that propelled Alice Cooper into the national spotlight when in 1969 uh, I'm at a Toronto gig uh, that was punctuated by the unexpected arrival of a stray chicken to the stage. Um, Cooper, an urban, urban youth who had no experience with barnyard fowl, scooped up and tossed into the air under the assumption the bird would fly away, but it did not. Um, instead, it plummeted into the ground in front of the crowd, and the chicken was instantly descended upon by angry fans who began savagely dismembering it, believing it was all part of the show. Yep. They threw it at him, and then he threw it back at him. Yep. <laughs> So uh, newspapers embellished the story the following day by claiming Cooper murdered the chicken on stage and ritualistically drank its blood. Frank Zappa, who had signed Cooper's group to his straight music record label, offered the following expert career advice to Alice. Whatever you do, don't tell anyone you didn't do it. All right. Great advice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Zappa. Gotta love Frank Zappa. Never heard of any, any of his stuff. It's weird. It's It was weird for the time, too. I mean, early 70s. I don't think they were ready for Zappa, but uh, funky, funky music. Yeah. So in a similar incident, in uh, 1988, uh, Ozzy Osbourne's solo career following his departure from Black Sabbath was beginning to thrive. Um, Ozzy and his wife slash manager Sharon decided to pull a fun stunt at CBS Records um, executive meeting in Los Angeles. Ozzy carried two doves into the room under his coat. Uh, the plan was that when uh, they would release them into the air at an appropriate celebratory moment. But then, as Ozzy later told the journalist, it was this board meeting and I started getting bored. So, to liven the atmosphere, he pulled out one of the doves and bit its head off. Um, and then he did so with the other one. And the record executives were not amused by that, by the way. I th think that was before 88. That could have been 80. I'm sorry. I might have been saying uh, 78. I think it, uh, it could have been 70. Well, no, because he was still a Sabbath. 
probably was you know 80. What? It might have been 82. I, yeah, I think I put the wrong thing on here. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all right. That'll be a correction. <laughs> that was fun. So the following year, yeah, I'm sorry. The following year, January 20th, 1982. So the uh, following incident was 81 then. Mm. Yeah, Osborne was playing a concert in Des Moines, Iowa. A teenage fan had brought a dead bat with him to the show and threw it onto the stage. As he saw the bat carcass on stage and thought it was a rubber toy bat, he picked it up and bit the head off, but he said the consistency of the bat immediately indicated that he'd misjudged. He said it was crunchy. <laughs> he told somebody. Can I, can, he had to get rabies fuck, shots. I, yes. I remember that. Who the fuck would bring a dead bat? I mean, I'd bring a real bat, There's but I'm not bringing shit. a dead I mean, bat. People bring things to concerts. What the fuck is wrong <laughs> with people? At least like they did back then. Who would bring a chicken to an Alice Cooper show? Yeah, right. I, 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 yeah no, he had to get rabies shots in the stomach. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. He also said it was like it was warm and gooey, like dripping down his face. So the bat might have just been killed. Yeah. Who knows? I remember him, him explaining like the Sharon was off stage and she was like screaming at him, like, it's real. It's real, Ozzy. Yeah. No, no, Ozzy. <laughs> yeah, but who knows with this guy? Because wasn't it true that he was trying to impress uh, Motley Crue and he snorted a bunch of ants? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. When they were touring together, yeah. it was like a gross out contest. But who the fuck was Also, bring um, at that exact same incident, I think um, Nikki Six was like trying to outdo him. Yeah. He got on the. He pissed on the ground and was about to snort up his own piss. Right. And Ozzy pushed him out of the way and snorted. Yeah, he snorted. Nikki Six's it. Yeah. Piss. Yeah. That's Party nasty. Just too fucking hard. What yeah. the fuck? All right. Well, the Misfits were not the only punks in the 1970s toying with ghoulish imagery. Though they were by far the most distilled, uh, the Cramps, who settled in Manhattan after forming in California, the spending cramps. some time in singer Lux Interior's hometown of Akron, Ohio, mm -hmm. sung celebratory tales of werewolves and zombies in a bed of Haskell Atkins-inspired psychobilly guitar riffing. Uh, though the group's uh, sexual undercurrent will always be a lot much stronger than its devotion to the macabre. You can see that by the uh, the song, Can Your Pussy Do the Dog? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a classic right there. So, Sal, I know you love this song. I was a teenage werewolf. that i i do they're so good i love the cramps <laughs> yes. they were amazing I, sammy you think they were doing hair on i don't i don't remember if you look at lux interior he almost looks like uh iggy. i think they were into some psychedelics yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, lux Lux looks like iggy pop so he does look like a heroin addict. yeah, iggy yeah pop, that, but that's another guy their, their cover of surfing bird is so fucking good and yeah, uh yeah what's that song the, yeah. the crusher Oh, you know what I also realized? I was listening to some crimes this week, too, and I realized that they also cover uh, The Green Door. You know that song? Yes. Uh, that, Green uh, Door. Yeah, that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio sings in yep. uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. What's going on behind the green door? Yeah, but I, I still, my favorite is The Human Fly. I'm a That's human a good one. fly. I just don't want to die. They got, a, <laughs> they got this great song called uh, Elvis Fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. 
Don't you know that I'm Elvis fucking Christ? But these guys, you know, just... Uh, Another huge song of theirs is Fever. Yeah. (laughs) I I think this band was so underrated, man. Yeah, for sure. Because you know who... You know, I remember buying one of their albums and who kind of like dusted them away was uh, Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello. Yeah, he, he came out, man, and just... Everybody else was forgotten. Damn. I don't know if Lux is still alive, but I know the band is done. Yeah, pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm not sure. I think he might be alive. I'm not. I don't remember. Hmm. Well, uh, the Cramps are widely given credit for being the progenitors of the psychobilly genre, yeah. which claims its origins in New York City's 1970s punk underground. Uh, psychobilly, sometimes also called horrorbilly, love it, is a fusion of rockabilly and punk rock. Uh, it's been defined as loud and frantic music, taking the traditional countrified rock style known as rockabilly and ramping up its speed to a sweaty pace, combining it with punk rock and imagery lifted from horror films and late night sci-fi schlock, oh, yeah. creating a gritty honky tonk punk rock. You know, who's a great example of this, Reverend Horton Heat. Yeah. Reverend Horton. I Absolutely. forgot about him. I got to listen to that. Reverend Horton Heat? Yes. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Was he from Whoville? Te- uh, Texas. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah, well, the dark imagery is awful. also uh, central to an offshoot of Psycho Billy known as Gathabilly. Yep. You know any Gathabilly bands? I'm sure I do. Yeah, there's, uh, a, there's actually a huge scene of that up in Toronto. Maybe, no, I don't think they are, but maybe Tiger Army? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. I mentioned them. Yeah. Did you at the front? I did. Uh, well, I'll have to listen to that. <laughs> well, psychobilly is often characterized by uh, lyrical references to science fiction, horror, uh, leading to lyrical similarities to horror punk and exploitation p- films, violence, lurid sexuality, and other topics generally considered taboo, though often presented in a comedic or tongue-in-cheek fashion. It's often played with an upright uh, double bass instead of the electric bass, which is more common in modern rock music, and the hollow-body electric guitar rather than the solid-body electric guitars that uh, predominate in rock music. That's correct. Yes, sir. Wow, this is th- that's the exact same uh, stuff that was written on some of the back of my porn that I watched. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Los Angeles bands like uh, TSOL, 45 Grave, yeah. The Flesh Eaters, Community FK, and Christian Death mm-hmm. focused on grim, discordant, and echoey musical offerings, uh, very much in line with overseas goth proprietors such as Bauhaus and Joy Division. Absolutely love Bauhaus. Bella Lugosi's dead. Oh, yeah. Great That's song. fucking awesome. By the way, the cover to that is a still from the uh, D.W. Griffith film, The uh, Sorrows of Satan. Did you know that? I did not. I never knew that. Never seen the movie, but yeah. You know, you mentioned T.S.O.L. and 45 Grave. They both appear on the Return of the Living Dead soundtrack. A lot of horror punk rock bands are on that soundtrack. Yeah, that's a fucking awesome soundtrack. Yep. Listen to that every once in a while. So um, the Los Angeles Death Rockers had their brief flashes <laughs> of humor. Uh, 45 Graves' first single was a cover of Don Hinson's 1964 Monster Mash Cash-In, Riboflavin flavored non-carbonated polyunsaturated blood. Give yeah, I want, a... I want to party with these dudes. <laughs> well, let's party. <laughs> Do you want to party?
Very nice. Yeah, 45 Grave is awesome. Listen to their first couple albums. They're, they're the shit. I like, yeah. the, I like the beginning. It, it almost sounded like, what's her name's uh, White Rabbit? Um, Jefferson Airplane. Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> yeah, no, I like. I love that song, man. I think it reminds me of that um, that old, like, that Beethoven song, you know, that's in all those, like, the Crip Keeper type, yeah. The, yeah. type song. Yeah. <laughs> all right. But for the most part, uh, there was little correlation between these depressed outfits and the rowdy punk showmanship of the Misfits. Closer to the Misfits were the British punk pioneers, the Damned, yeah. who by 1979 had transformed themselves from a vague Ramones clone into an undeniably distinct and acutely intrinsic uh, keyboard-driven rock band. Uh, smoky vocal singer Dave Vanian, whose backstory included an alleged stint digging graves, routinely wrapped himself in black capes and white stage makeup like Bella Lugosi, while other members included the Renfield-esque Rat Scabies on drums, the oddball guitarist Captain Sensible, whose penchant for mohair occasionally made him look like a neon gorilla. That's uh, <laughs> on the, like the cover. He's on the cover of Machine Gun Etiquette looking like that. They have the best stage names. Fuck yeah, ratscapies. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Dam's uh, records routinely featured gloomy oral exercises like the droning injury ode, Feel the Pain, uh, the demented carnival creeper, These Hands, and the band's most celebrated depression ode, I Just Can't Be Happy Today. Um, even some of their raw materials suggested a penchant for evil, such as the nihilist delight Born to Kill and the super catchy Stab Your Back. <laughs> Love it. You, you know what? You know what, guys? I I, I was always deep down a, a, a punk rock uh, fan, uh, especially with uh, uh, the gentleman just before that. He reminded me of Gary Newman that sang Cars. Oh yeah. Um, I I love it, man. I love punk punk music. I really do. I got to get more involved in it though. Sounds like uh, Jason Siegel from SLC Punk. Like he's dressed up in the the pink uh, polo shirt, but he's at the <laughs> he's the he's the meanest motherfucker yeah. in the mosh pit. Right. <laughs> and I'd be. Can I say it, Mikey? I'd be cock strong. <laughs> I love that movie too. <laughs> I like when the guy, when uh, what's his name, is holding up the uh, the um, oh man, what do they call it back in the day? Like the giant Blu-ray disc or whatever. The, the laser, laser, the laser, laser disc. disc. And he's like, there's a movie on there. <laughs> oh, the the German guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or even Devin Sawa. He's got all the yeah. the crazy hair and the acid that leaks into yeah, his into his skin. <laughs> yep. He's jogging. Oh, man. Well, the Misfits saw the damned, if not a direct influence, then at least kindred cobweb spirits. So uh, picking up uh, where we left off last week with the Crimson Ghost, although they had used the image on flyers before, it wasn't until their third single, 1979's Horror Business, that the Misfits adopted the public domain ghoul as their logo. And uh, by the way, Horror Business, uh, the title is a grim play on Chuck Berry's Too Much Monkey Business from 1956. Did you know that? 
No, no. I never knew that. <laughs> I love Chuck. Well, uh, Horror Business represented a watershed moment for both the misfits and the sub genre of horror punk they spearheaded. Though it was always obvious that the band had a violent edge, this single made clear a platform dedicated firmly to the macabre, the supernatural, and the grotesque. From the crimson ghost staring out at the listener beneath the blood-red horror on the cover, to the flip side where the black-and-white portraits of the individual band members shared space with a rendering of Lon Chaney as the Phantom of the Opera, to the aggressive music held within, this was the ultimate marriage of the Ramones and George Romero. Romero! Yeah. So to drive the point home even further, almost to the brink of self-parody, various copies of Horror Business were stuffed with an insert claiming the band had recorded the single in a haunted house and that strange voices and noises defying any explanation were heard when the group mixed the tracks later in the studio. In actuality, though, those noises were just an error during the mastering process that gave the songs on the album an extraordinarily bass-heavy sound, reducing the guitar to a thin, uh, trill background noises. You know, they finally they got their chance to work with George Romero. Yeah, yeah. The Misfits? Uh, the Bruiser. Bru- well, yeah, they, their and music. And the Scream video. Yeah, I was going to say, the Scream video, their music, and I think the band appeared in the film Bruiser. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into Bruiser a little bit, uh, actually. Cool. Not bad. So um, such ghoulish flair also extended to even the Misfits press releases. Uh, type 2 page biography circulated the band shortly after the release of the horror business is strewn with all sorts of unverifiable, often laughable anecdotes concerning band members. Uh, some of those examples include uh, saying Danzig, quote unquote, almost died when he was born at Hackensack Hospital. Or that the black rings under Jerry Only's eyes are the result of a rare pigment defect, which left his face permanently discolored in that area. Uh, Bobby Steele is related to British actress Barbara Steele. Yes, and spent his youth uh, skinning live cats. (laughs) So uh, Joey Image, uh, still being referred to the druggy nickname, uh, he used to have Joey Pills. Uh, (laughs) They quoted as saying he had been intimate with every young female in New York that he's met. I wonder if that's like every chick. Hello, bang. (laughs) So you know know what? I'm sorry, Sammy. What? You know what? You know what? You know what really bothers me once in a while. I don't have anything against this band. I really don't. They made their mark. They were. But you hear so many lead singers, so many guitarists, so many well-known musicians say they they respected and got most of their uh, start from listening to the Beatles. So where do you think punk actually got their lead from lots of that's a long story i mean you, you think it was reefer and, and heron you should read the book um <laughs> you should read the book please kill, uh, i think it's please kill me it's, it's right over there what's, it was so what's that book called it's right over there it's uh, the white one with the red you know, one it, i think it was a, <laughs> please kill me right yeah yeah it's all about it's all about punk rock and it, like how it got started no, I'm being like, serious. Garage days. i think oh, it I'm being was serious i'm being from, serious yeah, no, i think I, it was i don't want ge- you guys think i'm an idiot but i'm serious it like, was a generational thing i mean uh in the 60s it was all about love music was trying to promote that well, love didn't always work for people. Yeah, that's because a lot of girls said no. I mean, <laughs> you look at the Vietnam War, you know, uh, love didn't, you know, work for, for everybody. It wasn't the thing, even though, you know, it saved a lot of people or yeah. it, it just it made people happy in the 60s. Come the 70s, the start of punk rock, people weren't into love. Not, I mean, not as many. They were angry. They dude. wanted, they were, they, they're angry. angry. They wanted yeah. music to be more aggressive. They were sick of ballads and love songs. They wanted something more fierce. And, That's where you, you get know? bands like MC5, the yeah. Stooges. Yes, Detroit. Yes. yes. Yeah. But that's, but that's what I meant because 
because you know my brother did knucklehead. He 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 liked the Beatles because his first girlfriend slash wife liked it. And then I'd I'd be like, oh man, I don't want to listen to like you know you know John Lennon stuff. You know I love me. You know I you know I was I was I was more you know. To be honest, I've n- I never was that big into the Beatles. Always thought John Lennon was a fucking asshole. <laughs> Fuck John Lennon. <laughs> There's so many stories of him just being like, I mean, if you uh, if you want to be English about it, a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> and what was he thinking, banging Yoko Ono? Man, holy crap! Oh, she killed the Beatles. God damn, Joan Rivers was right because when John man. Lennon seen her naked, he went Yoko. Oh no! Oh. <laughs> well, to do a little callback to Chuck Berry. Go look at the video where. Yoko Ono ruins Chuck Berry and John Lennon's uh, uh, performance. I forget what show they were on, but uh, who is it? Um, the redheaded uh, comedian Bill uh, Bill Burr. He does a great bit on that. If you look, <laughs> just look on YouTube for like Bill Burr, Chuck Berry, John Lennon. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. you know what, I, I was very anti. Uh, you know, because my brother even liked Barry Manilow. He was such an asshole. You know, you know, and my father and my mother, you know, they they'd be like, "Well, you listen to that crap you're listening to." Well, because it's better than that shit. Well, let me explain something. Yeah, fuck Barry Manilow too. Fuck Barry Manilow. <laughs> that piece of oh, shit. Oh, Mandy. Right. Okay. Uh, hey, hey, Mikey, so, Mikey. Mikey. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so think of it this way. Okay. Metal, punk rock. You don't know. You know Lyric, ly- lyrical content usually isn't about love, whereas like the start of, of say punk, you know, as I, as as I was explaining earlier, it started because I think musicians, bands, they they were sick of hearing these love songs and yeah. ballads, yeah. so they just started to start something kind of fierce, something kind of dark and dangerous. Yeah, like you but, ain't nothing but a dead hag. I'm gonna <laughs> stab your back, stab your back. <laughs> But here's the thing. When you go to a metal or a punk show and you're really dedicated to the music, you're passionate about it, you're dedicated to uh, the local scene in your town or city, you feel love at a show like that because of your your peers. Like, you all have that thing in common. You're there to fucking rock and roll and feel good, and from that comes love, you know? Uh, So you're turning something dark and sick and dangerous into something fun and, and love. So 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 what you guys is telling me if I put on the album of the Ramones I could take a shot at the title? If uh, your your spouse is a willing participant, yeah. no, I'm, t- I'm talking about Selma Hayek. <laughs> uh, I don't think you know what I don't think Selma would be into uh, into Ramones. I don't. I, I see her more what into like a Latin. About, what about my little triad monkey? <laughs> <laughs> she'd probably she'd probably laugh at you and be like, oh, un poquito. <laughs> Does that mean triad monkey? Oh, I think man. that means small. I think it means small. I don't oh, know. Well, yeah, that'd be me. That'd be me. Well, uh, to bring up a boner killer here uh, from Salma Hayek, uh, the song Horror Business is based on two different but similar plots, and the boner killer I'm talking about is groupie Nansen Spongin. Uh, it's about her death in the 1960 movie Psycho. Uh, the song was released in June 1979. However, it was recorded just over a week in January and February of the same year while Vicious was still in prison. So on October 12th, 1978, the body of Nancy Spungen was discovered in the bathroom of her room at the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan. Uh, Spungen had been living at the hotel with her boyfriend, Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious. Her body was found with a fatal stab wound in her abdomen, and Vicious purportedly owned the knife that made the wound. Uh, Vicious was arrested and charged with second-degree murder, and after pleading not guilty, he was released on bail, awaiting trial. Sorry, Sal. Going back, Selma Hayek would say, Pequena. 
Pequeño. Does, pequeño, it, does that mean very small? Does that mean get away from me, chubby? <laughs> no, that means small. <laughs> but you know what? I think no is still the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no is universal. <laughs> All right. Well, on the evening of February 1st, 1979, a small group of Vicious's friends, including Misfits bassist Jerry Only, gathered to celebrate Vicious having made bail at his new girlfriend, Michelle Robinson's Greenwich Village apartment. So Vicious had undergone a detoxification program during his time in jail at Rikers Island. But at the dinner gathering, Vicious had English photographer Peter Kodik Gravel deliver him some hair on. Uh, <laughs> Vicious later died of an overdose at some point during the night. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. This guy kills his girlfriend uh, and knives her, gets another one, and he's doing he's doing some hair on? <laughs> yep. So uh, Vicious was discovered by his mother and Beverly and his girlfriend, Michelle Robinson, the following morning. He was DED. Because I thought of, I thought, I, you know what, Mikey, you want to hear my new date plan to impress mm. a girl? God forbid anything happened to my wife. Hair on? Yeah, I would do a line, I would do, I would do a shot of hair on and get uh, front row tickets to see Tiffany. <laughs> I swear, if you get a chance, watch the documentary. I think we're alone now. It's all about Tiffany's stalkers, and it's starring Cell. You don't want to go to the mall, Tiffany. <laughs> the best, the best movie that that's in is in Ted when uh, Giovanni yes. Ribisi is dancing in front of the, yes. the, the screen, oh, yeah. and I'd be wearing my boys the men shirt. <laughs> Okay, how about a little music trivia here? Who is who did the original? I think we're alone now. Abba. Um, I don't know. I'll throw in a name of Black Sabbath. You're both wrong, surprisingly. That would be Tommy James and the Shondells. Love Tommy James. Ooh. I think love, we're alone now. Love, yeah. love Tommy James. Crimson and Clover. Yeah. Sid Vicious was a piece so, of shit who couldn't yep. play bass. Yeah. Don't do Damn that. Damn it. <laughs> Where's my tree-eyed monkey? <laughs> All right. Well, prior to Sid Vicious's death, the Misfits were rumored to potentially back Sid Vicious on his proposed debut solo album. But after learning of his death, uh, Jerry only helped uh, Beverly collect Sid Vicious's possessions and invited her to attend a Misfits recording session. So while uh, Horror Business, Teenagers from Mars, and Children in Heat were recorded from January 26th to February 5th, 1979 at CI Studios in New York, where the band had recorded their proposed but shelved debut album, Static Age, just a year prior. Um, and Beverly attended at least one of these recording sessions that we know about. So the song, uh, like we were saying, Horror Business, is in general or also referencing the movie Psycho, which is widely considered one of the greatest movies of all time and a pioneer of the slasher films genre. Uh, the evidence that the song references the film would be the prominent lines like, uh, you don't go in the bathroom with me, I'll put a <laughs> knife right in you, and the line Psycho 78, which also appears in the song, uh, has been interpreted as transposing the year in which the film was released to the year that the song was recorded. Obviously, one of the most iconic scenes from Psycho is when the female character, Marion Crane, is taking a shower and is stabbed through the curtain by a psychotic Norman Bates. Oh, yeah. Let's listen to a little bit of horror business. Right okay.
Can we go back, rewind a little bit to uh, uh, Sid Vicious? Do you know uh, what Frank Sinatra song he covered? Oh, I do, but damn it, what is it? Oh, what is it? My way. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do it more. It's yeah. at, it's, it's at the end of the uh, uh, Goodfellas. Goodfellas, yeah. right? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Awesome. So I actually like that one. Not bad. Me too. Yeah. Sid Vicious fucking sucked as a bass player. Oh <laughs> yeah, you did. He was terrible. <laughs> he was bad. All right. Well, by 1960, Alfred Hitchcock had reached a turning point in his career. Although he was revered by some contemporaries, especially those of the French New Wave, Hitchcock was far from content. He was still bitter over his loss to John Ford for The Grapes of Wrath, uh, Best Director at the 1940 Academy Awards, even though that same year his film Rebecca had won the Oscar for Best Picture. Well, he would hobnob with Tinseltown's elite, his growing obsession with his leading ladies and its inevitable futility was taking its toll. He characteristically dealt with his problems the only way he knew how on screen, and it was this as if he condensed all of his anxieties, anger, and frustration into a single film, his masterpiece, and the first true slasher film, Psycho. Yeah. So uh, in the film, uh, Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, Phoenix secretary, steals $40,000 from her boss and heads off into the California desert. Uh, she stops uh, for the night at the Bates Motel, where the proprietor, Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, a nervous young man, lives with his elderly mother. That night while showering, Marion is brutally murdered by a knife-wielding woman. Uh, of course, we know at the end of the movie, uh, we find out that in the fruit cellar is the real Mrs. Bates, an eyeless stuffed corpse, and the real murderer is Norman, who for years has been dressing up as his dead mother and killing unsuspecting guests. Another trans. Yeah. You know, we did Glenn or Glenda. Norman Bates was kind of cro- yeah. cross-dresser. I think they might say something about that at the end of the movie. Like, he really wasn't because he was crazy. Like, he actually believed he had a split personality or something. But, right. yeah, that's, I think they would probably categorize him as that. Today. Once you check in, you can never check out. <laughs> no vacancy. Yeah. <laughs> so the most controversial aspect of Psycho was the infamous shower scene, um, at the time viewed as the single most heinous act of murder ever captured on celluloid. Taking over a week to shoot in December 1959, this 45-second scene, which contained an unprecedented 75 camera setups, is a magnificent visual composition of calculated violence. We can talk about the documentary. We could. Yeah. Yeah, 7852. Yeah. That's an amazing documentary. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Yeah, I watched that this week. It was, and was, I was I was at first I uh I was like I hadn't seen it before. I was like, how are they going to cover an hour and a half of this one thing? But it well, was actually there was a lot of backstory on the, the history of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Not just it's a, kind of a full critique on Psycho, not just and Hitchcock's filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the genius of the shower scene, however, lies in its ability to give the impression of uh, extreme bloody violence when in reality very little graphic detail is shown. Like any good showman, uh, Hitchcock subscribed to the idea that what the, an audience could conjure up in their minds was far more horrible than what could actually be shown on screen. That's one of the things I think they discussed in uh, 7852, by the way. Mm-hmm. They discuss, uh, Like he had a... Uh, his One of his awesome techniques was called like the bomb under the table. Yes. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Yeah, it's basically uh, like if you were to have a scene play out where like you would just uh, 
you know, people would be sitting around talking for five minutes and then a bomb explodes at the end. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, you get like, you know, five seconds of excitability there. Mm -hmm. But if you were to tell people like there's a bomb under the table and it's going to explode in five minutes, it makes the scene way more tense. Building the tension. Yes. You know, you know, yeah. uh, That's why he was the master of suspense. Yeah. He he, I I seen the documentary on him where he he told that story. In the yeah. exact same way. That's like, from exact uh, same way my nephew Terror did. in the Isles. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's, he, he, that's an awesome yeah. documentary. Donald Pleasance. Uh, yeah, it, it was. It was an awesome, that. awesome. You know, and, and, and you know, uh, how could it's kind of like an Inglorious Bastards. That's the scene I always think of when I think of the bomb under the table technique. It's yeah. kind of like the Jew in the crawl space. <laughs> you know, when, uh, yes. in the beginning when uh, Hans sure. is interrogating the guy and he's like, can I have some milk? Can Shoshana. I have this? Can I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He pulls out the big giant pipe. <laughs> but, right. he, but, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people would get that. Uh, what uh, uh, you know, he was trying to say, you know, what he, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's way of thinking. I think he was a little deep. That guy was really deep, man. He was insanely deep. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, because I, I, you know, when he made that statement about the bomb under table, and I'm like, you know what? That's crazy, but it makes sense. Yeah. You know, that you're showing it to the audience. Like, yeah. Here it is. Yeah. And you're not going to forget that it's there. Right. But all this other stuff's going on, and you're waiting and waiting right. and waiting, and then. Boom, it delivers. You know, and, and a lot of people, you know, that went to the theater to see this movie, it was really weird because nowadays, if they brought that movie here, you know, a lot of a lot of the audience would be like, oh, man, that guy's bi or he's tra- he's a tranny or blah, blah, blah. But back then, it got overlooked because of the violent part. Yes. You know, they they, they stabbed uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's mom to die, or he stabbed Jamie Lee's mom. You know, then he, then he, then he threw her in the car and, and put her in the quicksand. She was an, an adult. Wait, she was messing with a married guy, right? Wasn't that the opening scene? No, he was. She, uh, the guy was. Uh, he was sending alimony payments to his ex-wife. Yeah, so he was. Yeah, divorced. So, yeah, so so right away, you know, she's she's you know giving it out for free, which I don't see nothing wrong with. But you know, not really. That's and, her boyfriend. <laughs> she's not like you know. And, and then she rips off the the rich guy, which is cool. You know, I mean, you know, the the audience the audience was focused on her, not 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 on. Uh, not on Norman yeah, Bates. But I mean when you watch this scene, you you know that something's coming and when it's yeah. coming, it's gonna hit you like a fucking Mack truck. That's yeah. what they say that in the psycho, the bomb under the table is kind of Norman Bates voyeurism. Yeah. Like yeah. you know something weird is coming up, especially when he peels off that picture. Which by the way, the picture mm-hmm. on the wall is also like kind of like a Kubrick thing. What yeah. he would do is yeah. like, you know, that picture is actually right. a painting. I forget what it's called, Susanna and the Elders or something like that. Oh, but a, the painting, the subject of it is like a voyeuristic painting. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and, 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 and and again, it, it, you know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock was a genius and just in his, in, he was way ahead of his time. I mean, right away, you know, he's got, the guy's got a peephole. That's that's creepy. I don't give a fuck. I mean, I mean, did I have peepholes? Yeah, but that's creepy. So you, you know, glory holes, you know. You oh, sorry about that. Anyway, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, you know, I mean, I covered them up. Anyway, uh, you, you know, the, you know, the point. The point is, is that you, you know, dude, these movies were so far ahead of its time. Dressed to Kill yeah. with Angie Dickens, dude. Mm. Do you guys see that? Oh, yeah. That was that was that was that was fucking. Like I always She's say about that movie, Cock Hungry. Yeah. Angie Dickinson. <laughs> she was getting on the entire movie. Whore. <laughs> No, don't, don't slut shame on this show. <laughs> yeah, she was. That's why I liked her. <laughs> you let her give it out. <laughs> but then she got knifed. Yeah. Too. All right. Well, the shower, uh, the shower scene was originally written to see only the knife-wielding hand of the murderer. Um, Sir Alfred Hitchcock suggested to Sal Bass, who was storyboarding the sequence, several angles that would capture screenwriter Joseph Stefano's description of an Impression of a nice slashing as if it was tearing at the very screen, ripping the film apart. 
So, uh, by the way, did you know that Anthony Perkins was not involved in this scene at all? I was just going to say, like, was it a, it had to be a stunt person or like a, a body double. Yeah, I think it was just a body double that they got. Um, he had said for many years that he wasn't there because he had uh, like a scheduling conflict with a Broadway musical he was doing, uh-huh. Green Willow. Uh-huh. But actually, it was a deliberate decision on Hicks, Hitchcock's part. Um, on the subject, Perkins states that uh, Hitchcock was very worried that the dual role and the nature of Norman Bates would be exposed if he were to appear in that scene. And he thinks it was the recognizability of his silhouette, which is rather slim and broad in the shoulder. That worried uh, Hitchcock a little bit. Hmm. He would worry that people would spot it right away. I, I I never I never knew that that wasn't. But but in real life, Perkins was 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 gay, right? Well, I know he died of AIDS, but I don't. No, know. no, he was. He was gay. Yeah, he was yeah, gay in real life. Was. Yeah, he was. And and and, and but he had a wife at the. Uh, you know, he, had, he was married when yeah. he died. Yeah. to a woman. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and and again, you know, back then, you know, it's creepier and scarier to me that it came out now and not back then. It's like, boy, were you trying to tell us something and we didn't even fucking know it, kind of thing. Even though it was a was a was an Alfred Hitchcock uh, uh, movie, you know, it was it was a film, and it related to him. I mean, to me, you know, that that that's a little creepy, man. You know, I've never mm-hmm. seen the sequels. Oh, they're great! Oh, they're see, great. Yeah. I, you know what? Um, they are pretty good. Uh, yeah, Meg Tilly is in the second Meg one. Is, now, now he was in one there's remake. Like the, there's was, a, he in, was he in one remake? He, was, he did two and three. He did. Did he do two and, and three? And I think he directed them. I know the or the second one might have been like a Mick Garris thing. I know. I think he might have written it. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the movie, like his the his mother, they find out like his mother is not Norma Bates. It's some other woman, and he gets so mad about it, like she's eating. Eating dinner right there, and he takes a shovel and whacks her in the back of the I head, see, yeah, and you yeah, literally hear like it. the classic like Kong. <laughs> you know what those see me? Those I, are good. Yeah, watch I, those. to answer Mikey's question, or I'm sorry, he didn't ask, but in my opinion, I just did not care for the sequels at all because you really? can't. Yeah, you know why? Because it's like redoing the Ten Commandments or Rosa of Oz. It ain't gonna. Well, happen. they're not the originals, it definitely, happen, but they're man. like classic like '80s yeah. movies. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, were they were they entertaining? Hell yeah, because they're related to to, to, to to the original film. But but they made four of them, I think. Yeah, I think it was four or five. Really? But I think but I've only can't... seen two, two and three. Yeah, but with something like this, you you can't copy it, man. You can't add on to it. Uh-huh. But but he, I remember my parents. I when I first watched, like, oh, my parents were watching it, and all the TVs were black and white anyway back then. And when they showed him at the end. That was the scariest, creepiest part of the movie. Because he just, look at him, man. He looks like that guy. You yeah, know? and he kind of did like the little uh, Kubrick, like, you know, the thousand yard stare. Yeah, and... yeah. And I guarantee, I guarantee his his dreams were worse than my snake wearing a leather jacket. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. There you go. You had to throw it in. All right. Well, the scene is perfectly augmented by Bernard Herrmann's unforgettable shrieking violins. Uh, while today it may be impossible to imagine the scene without the musical accompaniment, the composer actually had to persuade Hitchcock to use it. Uh, so as Hitchcock originally envisioned the shower scene as a completely silent uh, scene there, uh, Bernard Herrmann went ahead and scored it anyway. But upon hearing it, Hitchcock immediately changed his mind. So, like we said, uh, the score is composed by Bernard Herrmann and is played entirely by stringed instruments. Uh, Herrmann achieved the streaking violin shou- uh, scenes in the shower by having a group of violinists saw at the same note over and over, and he called the motif a return to pure ice water. 
Mm. Yeah, so Herman had also written a cue for the climax where Mrs. Bates is revealed to be a skeleton and Norman the true color killer. However, on the advice of Hitchcock, Herman reused the theme from the shower scene. Um, the alternate cue can be heard on the 1997 album conducted by Joel McNeely and performed by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. There's like five or six different versions of the Psycho score. It's amazing. Different uh, orchestras that have done it here or there. Different Classic. composers. I used it at my wedding. When, you're, when we were which, cutting the cake. That's which, awesome. <laughs> which, which one, Mikey? Which one? <laughs> no, you didn't. Fuck yeah, I did. Really? That's oh, great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> That's how you know Mike's a true horror fan right there. <laughs> I had to throw it in. So all well, in I, all, had to, I had to tell my in-laws, I'm like, this is who I am. <laughs> <laughs> he cuts the cake and blood pours yeah, out of the middle. Yeah. Instead of confetti, it was a blood cake. <laughs> And then Blood Feast started playing. I can't, believe you, I can't believe you actually had that. That's oh, awesome. Absolutely. Uh, so all in all, Hitchcock was delighted with Herman's very significant contribution to this movie, giving the composer an unusual amount of credit, for Hitchcock at least, and stating that openly that 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. So, um, yeah, we're going to like uh, play the scene uh, right here. I'll just uh, maybe comment on it a little bit. I want you guys to notice, though, the music in this scene is basically like Marion's heartbeat. It starts very fast when he opens the curtain up, and then by the end of it, it fades away real slowly, kind of like her breath would or her heartbeat would. Yeah. Yeah, watch that as you're uh, checking this out. By the way, they said this was the first time a toilet was ever flushed on screen, That's right, too. yeah. Weird thing, Flushed right? and, well, I don't know about shown, but flushed. Yeah. It's a good thing I didn't just use it. <laughs> TMI. She wouldn't even be able to be in that bathroom <laughs> if you... <laughs> I'd leave a floater. Oh, God. That's what, that's what we got a song for Sal. You don't go in the bathroom after Sal. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I need a cigarette. <laughs> I love how it just starts with like this, that background. It's such an op open, empty space, and you see Norman coming. Yeah. You know something's coming. Like She's vulnerable. Yes. You know, since this is one of the most iconic scenes in, in film history that everybody loves and adores, why is horror treated like a fucking sick, disgusting disease and schlock, you know? Like, there's no award for it at the Oscars. Everybody, I say, I say majority of Hollywood, they look down upon the genre. And you look at this, uh, like, this is classic film history one of the best movie scenes of all time yeah so it's like why hate what you <laughs> truly love you make up a good point how come there's a best drama best this best that but there's no best horror horror is the oldest genre of film that there is it's been around since 
the silent films. Some of the first silent films were horror movies. Yeah, because mm. what was Nosferatu? What One of the first it? ones. What yeah. year was that? Oh, I want to say 1921. 20s, yeah. yeah. Cabinet very, of Dr. Caligari. Why, why, why did Norman Bates save her anyway? Because she was a whore? Well, <laughs> mother didn't approve. <laughs> she was a whore. <laughs> mother didn't approve. By the way, that last part where they go from like her eyeball like into... You know, in back into the hotel room and then back to Norman Bates. That's a cool shot because that's like that's three different sets that they basically had to splice together back then. Mother, no oh kidding. God, mother, blood, blood. Why did they cap it off with such cheesy lines right there? Then, blood, blood. <laughs> but it's awesome. The house, the house was just awesome. Yeah, so uh, multiple characters in Halloween are inspired by a psycho. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was cast as the heroine based on the casting of her mother, Janet Leigh, in Psycho. Dr. Sam Loomis is uh, directly uh, named after John Gavin's character, uh, the boyfriend of Marion. And the name Marion Chambers, uh, the nurse in Halloween, is inspired by Marion and Judge Chambers. Yeah. So uh, coming full circle, by the way, when Janet Lee appears in Halloween H2O, she stands in front of the exact car from Psycho. Uh, the license plate on the car is also the exact same as the car uh, Marion buys in Psycho, NFB 418, which are Norman Bates' initials. And lastly, Norma, Lee's character in H2O, the name of Norman Bates' mother from Psycho. So the music playing in the background is also from Psycho in Halloween H2O. Do you know what other film Jamie Lee and Janet Lee appeared in together? No. John Carpenter's The Fog. The Fog, yeah. I knew I I couldn't get it out fast enough. Yeah, so another slasher, Billy Loomis, the killer from Scream, was also named after Sam Loomis and Psycho. And uh, Psycho is also said to be heavily influenced by uh, Henry George's Clouseau's uh, French psychological horror film Diabolique from 1955, which was also a lurid black and white uh, crime story, film noir, uh, with sharply drawn characters, a misogynistic overtone, and loads of suspense focusing on grisly murder scenes in the middle and a shocking twist at the end. Uh, both Robert Block, who, whose uh, novel the movie was uh, Psycho was based on, um, and Alfred Hitchcock proclaimed their great admiration for it. Have you guys ever heard or seen of this movie? Diabolic? Yeah. Um, it's also known as Les Diabolics. I mean, I've heard devils. of it. I don't think I've seen it. I've never heard of it. It's a great French film. Yeah, Is definitely. It? Yeah, one of the one of the best French films I've ever seen before. It's awesome. Like I said, it's kind of like a like a it's Psycho before its time a little, oh, like five wow. years before Psycho. Cool. Yeah, but whereas Psycho had a shocking uh, shower uh, murder scene. Diabolique had a shocking bathtub murder scene. Uh, Psycho's shower scene is said to be directly influenced by the earlier film's bathtub scene, as both films provide an unexpected shocker at the end by inverting their audience's expectations. Um, In Psycho, viewers believe that Norman's mother is alive, but in fact is really dead and not the killer. In Diabolic, uh, the character is shown murdered, and is believed to be dead, but later revealed as a villain alive all along. These are two uh, probably pretty, um, I would say, disturbing scenes for 1955. This one guy, uh, they drug him. They put a bunch of uh, like sleeping pills in his alcohol, and they're about to put him in the bathtub and just let him drown, but he wakes up. <laughs> He's like, oh, what are you doing to me? <laughs> Yeah, so they got to hold his head under the water and drown his head. They, they eventually end up putting a, a statue on his chest to hold him under the water. <laughs> what about that? It's so it, funny. It is wallet. <laughs> <laughs> 
so, I would wait to see what floats. <laughs> so it's like, like I said, this is a whole big crime, uh, crime novel. They try to hide his body. Where they hide his body, it turns out his body disappears from, <laughs> um, which they try and put him in like the pool of a hotel um, of the school. <laughs> but um, later on, he actually comes back from the dead, and this woman has a heart attack upon seeing him. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, yeah, he's got. It's this is a cool scene, by the way, because she's got a heart problem. So when she sees him, like his eyes are all white and shit. It's fucking awesome. Nice. Suck bleu. <laughs> she has a grabber. <laughs> yeah, because in the movie she has a heart condition, like the oh. for the whole movie. Nice. Yeah, this is really cool though. I like how his eyes are just like white. <laughs> she croaks in fright, huh? <laughs> Yeah, the guy takes his uh, his eyeballs out. Well, his, uh, their contact lenses, but they're fucking huge. They look so uncomfortable. Oh, nasty. <laughs> but I want a pair of those contacts. Give me them white awesome. eyeballs. Awesome. <laughs> oh, that's gross. Yeah. Uh, look at her. Diabolique is a really good film. Definitely, I, w- I would recommend that. Uh, okay. So uh, the film gained additional press when, only five years after its release, director uh, Henry Georges Clouseau's wife and star of the film, Vera Clouseau, suddenly died of a heart attack at age 46, somewhat mirroring her character in the film, who also had heart problems. So um, Vera Clouseau also only made three films, all directed by her husband. Uh, She was the sole female role in Wages of Fear from 1953, about a South American town where a group of desperate men are offered money to drive trucks carrying nitroglycerin uh, through a rough terrain uh, to pull uh, out an oil well fire. Sound familiar to you, Mike? I, you know what? That sounds really familiar Kinda. to me. What about the movie Sorcerer, which is oh, a, re- yeah. a remake? Yeah, yeah. William Friedkin. Yeah. Did I was it. gonna say uh, the guy looked like. Uh, is that the guy from Jaws? Yeah. Yep. Roy Schneider. Roy Schneider. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, William Friedkin's Sorcerer is a remake of Wages of Fear. Wow. So um, also uh, the famous shower scene influenced the major sequence of another very controversial R-rated release by Universal almost a generation later, Brian De Palma's Scarface. Uh, De Palma was impressed that the psycho shower scene hinted at horrifying carnage, but didn't actually show explicit nudity and gore, and also used similar quick-cut elements for the scene, where a man is dismembered by a chainsaw-wielding Colombian drug dealer while handcuffed to the top of a shower stall. So fans of each movie ended up uh, walking away and feeling that there was much more gore than they actually saw, thanks to the smart editing and cinematography. Oh, that chainsaw scene is pretty horrific man. yeah you think i watched it this week too there you do end up thinking you saw a lot more gore than there's yes. actually just some splashes like yeah. on their face and yeah. stuff so i'm um, also during production of the film raging bull when martin scorsese had trouble figuring out how we would cut together the last fight between jake lamada and sugar ray robinson to be specific when lamada is up against the ropes and getting beaten um he used the original shot lift list from the shower sequence in psycho to help him figure it out both horrific scenes at one point in raging bull robinson viciously pounds jake sending a geyser of blood all over the ringside attendees yeah check this out. i was able to get these like pretty closely synced up check this out here what do you think of this martin scorsese's great by the way i love how he fucking does shit like this oh yeah he's one of the best filmmakers Oh. Never got me down, Ray. I love how like the the soundtracks matches nice. up with this. 
<laughs> Sugar Ray Robinson's like holding his hand back about to punch Jake LaMotta. And that's when you get that geyser of blood. Oh, that's nice. nice. <laughs> I don't know. When I think of Scorsese, I don't think of Raging Bull enough. I, I had to watch this this week again. I love, it's an amazing you know, movie. You know which one I, I always forget that he did? Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, that's another one. Yeah. I always forget about yeah. that one. Well, that's Psycho. You guys got anything else you want to get in there on Psycho? Classic. Don't bother with the remake with Vince Vaughn and Anne Hesch. Oh, it was horrible. It's funny. They said I, I that, in, uh, that in 50, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, 78, 52, they talk about that too, how they shot it specifically that shower yeah, scene exactly yeah. the same and they're like it just didn't work out for some reason i don't yeah. know why it just didn't there's nothing didn't memorable and i like vince it. vaughn. it's because they did it all in color and it looked yeah. garbage yeah. Yeah. Vin- vince vaughn is a comedic actor so that ain't gonna work <laughs> yeah he's funny <laughs> vince vaughn. no i'm just playing he was good in uh what was that cell block uh oh yeah uh, 99 or something yeah, yeah. what is that the one where he's bald yeah. yeah. Oh, Sammy showed me. Got the cross on his head. Holy brutal. crap! Was that, that brutal? That filmmaker has made some great stuff, like uh, Bone Tomahawk. Oh, that oh yeah, like, that's it like, is the same dude. That's like my favorite western now. Yeah, yeah. What, but is, Mike, what was when, his name? Who did that? I forget the filmmaker's name, but he also did a good one called Dread Across Concrete with Mel Gibson, and then he made another recently uh check out his stuff i've uh, i can look up the, the guy's name yeah. in a second that one was a little long it wasn't it like a three hour movie that one three and a half hours or something dragged across concrete uh, it was long yeah, yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you that movie with vince vaughn when when sammy told me to watch it that was a That's true brawl in cell block 90 99 yeah, yeah something like that 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 was a true showing of cock strong because that <laughs> motherfucker okay. was cock strong mm-hmm. s craig zoller Check out his stuff. He's a great filmmaker. Yeah. So on uh, Halloween of 1979, the Misfits released a horror business follow-up single, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, the title track swings with a sense of glee as Danzig outlines a zombie uprising that most assuredly ain't no fantasy. A dreadful situation where humans are being ripped apart like shredded wheat. And in a place of a proper chorus, Night of the Living Dead features an elongated chance of nose and O's, as if the band themselves are decrying this undead apocalypse before them. Let's hear a little bit of Night of the Living Dead. I think it's one of the best films of all time. I also think it's one of the best horror films of all time. 
uh, you know, if you listen listen to like interviews with uh, Romero when he was still alive, the making of it was incredible. And the day they finished it, when he was going to go, like bring it uh, to get either like shown for the first time or like like they finished the film, they were going to go like bring it to a studio. Uh, was the night that I think uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, and really? the city of uh, well, they shot it in Pittsburgh. I think they were they were on their way to New York. Like the city was on fire with like protests and people freaking out. Didn't I hear they finished it and they instead of like taking it straight to the studio, they took it to a theater first and screened it like randomly before it even you know anybody had it's else possible. had really seen it. Yeah. It's possible. And I could be wrong if it was was it MLK or was it JFK. It had to be MLK. Uh, yeah, like he, you know, he got assassinated, and then they, like that night, they were driving to like bring the reels to the studio, or whatever, and uh, the streets were on fire. That's insane. Imagine uh, if it got burnt up. I know. Well, burnt up. You know, the movie's been in public domain for years because George never put, I guess, his name on it. Yeah. So he yeah. never really got paid for yeah. making it. Yeah, that's why it's George uh, Romero never got paid for Night of the Living Dead. They're still fighting to this day to like get money. Yeah. Are you kidding? That's why so many people have like, remade domain. it over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if there's one specific piece of fringe cinema to single out as the most important to the following narrative, it's definitely George Romero's 1968 zombie nightmare, Night of the Living Dead. Love it. Yeah, the cult masterpiece follows the plight of five survivors of an unexplained viral disaster who attempt to safeguard themselves in a Pennsylvania farmhouse as legions of corpses rise from the grave, hungry for human flesh. Uh, Romero's vision was a stark one from the low-grade black-and-white visuals of the panicked survivors fighting off their lumbering attackers to the film's semi-surprise ending that is void of hope or relief. Night of the Living Dead forever altered the DNA of the horror film, exercising cheap thrills and camp in favor of complete dread. It eventually became a staple of Americana thanks in part to the film public's domain status, like Mike said, as the original distributor failed to place a copyright notice on the original prints of the film, allowing anyone and everyone to release it over the years. Yeah. I swear, one of these days, I am going to make the trek out to Pittsburgh. I'm going to do a road trip. I want to see the cemetery uh, of Night of the Living Dead. And supposedly there, there's a whole app out there that tells you all the major fil- uh, filming locations that George Romero used in his movies like the monroeville mall for dawn of the dead they do tours there i gotta go I, awesome. I, I just gotta just suck it up and just go just drive out there and just see all these cool locations and stuff yeah the house can't be there anymore right because they were about to tear that down that's why they filmed in that house wasn't it i believe so maybe it's still there um there's a, like i said there's an app there's websites listing all the major filming locations like his old office uh his film company was called uh uh, the latent image and the office building was used for a couple different films, uh, especially uh, Dawn of the Dead. Didn't they make a replica of uh, Michael Myers's house for Halloween? Didn't somebody make a replica of it? The real house is still out there. Yeah, I know yeah. the real house is still out there, California. but I thought somebody said that they, they. Newsflash, there is no Haddonfield, Illinois. No. <laughs> they. Uh... <laughs> I know yeah. they did. They made one of. Uh, they built the house for Friday. What was it? Uh, J- Freddy vs. Jason. They built uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street house, like on a soundstage. Oh, they did. Yeah. Bates Motel is still at the Universal lot. Yeah. yeah. Is it? It's still there. Uh, we did a tour of that. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, when you I did. Was, yeah, when we were younger, like the house and everything. Yeah, Damn. it was cool. They, they even had the, uh, like the, um, the bathroom there, like with the shower that, like oh, cool. you know, it split apart all the sets. Wow. Yeah, it was cool. 
So when it was released on uh, October 2nd, 1968, the response to it was immediate and sensed an utterly hysterical. Although few critics were able to see it at the time, there was far more to Night of the Living Dead than just its visceral impact. Psycho might have recalibrated the focus of modern horror, but it was Romero who widened its scope. Taking the family-based terror of Hitchcock's masterpiece as a starting point, Romero molded it into his wide-ranging critique of contemporary America, marked by unrelenting nihilism, graphic violence, and visceral scenes of a world completely turned upside down. Uh, this is a film that dragged American horror kicking and screaming into the modern age. It's still a scary movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, by the way, uh, family horror is everywhere in Night of the Living Dead. Uh, the Coopers are faced with their zombified daughter, the mother being killed with a garden trowel, <laughs> reminiscent of uh, Marion and Psycho. Uh, Barbara has to confront her dead brother and is only in the predicament because they were in the process of placing flowers on their father's <laughs> grave. Um, and Ben is forced to watch his former members of his, the com his farmhouse community return from the dead. More than anything else, though, Night of the Living Dead suggests that the nationwide family of America itself is a sign of horror, as there's no longer any simple way to tell the monsters from the normal people. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to overstate the importance of this film. Uh, not only did it bring zombie films back into popularity in 1968, but it served as an early cultural milestone by being perhaps the first widely released film to feature a black protagonist, saving an almost entirely white cast. Uh, director George Romero says he wasn't trying to insert racial politics into it and that Dwayne Jones was simply the best actor for the part of Ben, but it's uh, worthy of acknowledgement regardless. What do you like better, the 1968 original or the 1990 Tom Savini remake? 1968 for sure. Yeah? Yeah. There's no beating that, man. I love Night 90. Was that Tony Todd in that? Tony Todd. Yeah, Tony yeah, Todd, yeah, yeah, the second one. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, 1990. Well, they couldn't have picked a better, you know, Tony Todd's excellent, man. Oh, yeah. Excellent actor. But this guy just... He, there's no uh, comparing him to, to any remakes. It, this 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 movie was magnificent. Oh yeah. So um, by the way, the social commentary on uh, racism some have seen in this film was never intended. Exhibit A: uh, The posse of whites uh, shoot a black man in the head without first checking to see if he was a zombie. Um, exhibit B, the sillier argument that a black man is quote unquote shacking up with a white woman. Yeah. There That's, is there uh, is social commentary there for sure. Yeah, that's a little weird, though. I mean, what do they expect? Like, there's a zombie uprising. He's supposed to run up. Oh, sorry. There's a white woman here. I'm out yeah. of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know some jackass is going to bring that shit up. There's always those you fucking know. jackasses like yeah. that. Yeah. So anyway, the uh, the word zombie is never used in here, by the way. Uh, the most common euphemism used to describe the living dead is, quote unquote, those things, yep. uh, mostly by Cooper. Um, the characters refer to the creatures as ghouls and flesh eaters. The zombies of uh, Night of the Living Dead are not really monsters at all, by the way. Instead, there are our fellow citizens with who, with no leader and no motive besides hunger, have returned to feed on us. Uh, they are simply, as Romero was so fond of saying, the neighbors. So, however, the film uh, categorized many troops about zombies that have uh, been used in many movies since, including zombies eating human flesh and that zombies can only be killed by shooting them in the head. You know, they never use the word zombie in The Walking Dead. Yeah. They, they call them walkers or empties. Oh, that's walkers. right. Yeah. Uh, you never hear the word zombie. Yeah. Yeah. I like in both, um, they do it in, what was it, The New Dawn of the Dead, where Tom Savini plays the, the sheriff in there, where he's like, they're acting all kind of, you got to shoot him in the head. He's like, whoa, whoa, we got a twitcher over there. Get a, get a bullet in his head. <laughs> 
Yeah, the sheriff in uh, the original Night of the Dead is pretty funny, too. He's like, come on, burn them bodies yeah. up. <laughs> Another one for the fire. It's pretty horrific at the end, too. After they shoot Penn, they drag him out with a meat hook and light him on fire yeah. during the credits. So uh, Romero also never lets us forget that this film is about the body, or to be more accurate, the horror of the body. Refusing to skirt the issue of the zombie's physicality, both its monstrous form as a reanimated corpse and in its newly threatening form as a flesh-eating creature, Romero brought an uncompromising realism to the genre and added a previously unheard-of dimension to the zombie myth, cannibalism. So before Night of the Living Dead, zombies had been content to scare, strangle, or bludgeon their victims, but Romero upped the ante by giving them a taste for warm human flesh and as a result, the scene in which the barbecued remains of Tom and Judy are eaten by ghouls became the film's most influential moment. And uh, from that moment onwards, cinematic zombies would always be flesh eaters. It's weird. You never really saw that before this. That's true. I got to say, Sammy's right. At the end of um, Night of the Living Dead, what what bothered me just as much as watching the movie was the end when they 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 showed uh, the clips of the dogs going and finding them, the dead bodies in a pile, them burning them. Man, those pictures that they showed at the end, they were just as disturbing as the movie. Yeah, man. they almost looked real. Yeah, it was it was it did it did it really you know it, it really bothered me. It was almost one of those things. Yeah, you like those are it's still one of those movies I watch and like by the after the credits are done rolling, I'm almost like mouth agape, still like wow. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fucking crazy. Because when, when that came out, I was seven. And I loved that movie, man. I loved that movie. But but you know nowadays, you, you, Mikey, come on. Nowadays you have kids; they're not going to even allow your seven year old to watch stuff like this. But it's it's public domain, so it's it's on. I don't say all the time, but like Sven Gulli will, will play it probably once a year. And I don't think enough people either they sit through the whole thing and watch it, mm-hmm. or they don't study it like you know us nerds. But uh, <laughs> It does seem like a very slow film when you think about it, but it, there is a lot going on there. there they're, they're talking they're, about like the asteroid that's coming overhead, yeah, like, right. that's causing people the, mm-hmm. the radiation. You, you know, and, and the scariest thing is we're we're the society, you know, and us as people and human beings, you know, would you panic? Would you would you not even try to defend yourself? Would you freeze? You know, would you run? Would you leave your partner? Would you leave the kids? Yeah. You know, there's so much to, so much more to, to, to these movies than you think. And that's what interests me because I would really have loved to have gotten, and we discussed this in our earlier podcast, uh, uh, you know, uh, Serling, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, even even that guy who I don't understand what the fuck he was talking about, Andy Warhol. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and guys like that and get him in a room, you know, in Wes Craven. And see what the fuck were you guys thinking making these movies? You know, their their you know their their looks on on films were just way ahead of their times. But at the same time, they're, they're, a lot of people are still now offended. I mean, this one is just this movie is really celebrated. Like uh, reading stories of like people that worked on the film and uh, what went on behind the scenes, like yeah. with uh, Savini. Yeah. Savini was in high school, and George asked him to work on this, but. Uh, Tom Savini was going to go to Vietnam, and he did. And, and he, did, and yeah, he did. did not work on Night yeah. of the Living Dead. But he, when he came back, uh, he started working with George. And then, I, and then, uh, well, of course, he's on Dawn of the Dead. But, you uh, know, but again, he was like, "You'll never believe what I saw at Vietnam. I'm going to make a great yeah. movie." Yeah. But, but, yeah. but, point being, what really just—he was a combat photographer. You know, I, I don't know, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but really, what really pisses me off is people just 
you know, uh, I don't mean anything personal towards anybody. Uh, my wife was like, why do you watch this stuff? Why do you watch this stuff? Oh, yeah? Why do you watch the news? Man, the news makes our genre look like it's playtime at the, you know, at, at the at the park. Man, I was watching news the other day. Holy shit! Little three year old got killed by his five year old brother. You know, no, the this, mom drowned is, her daughter. Dude, this is fun. This is escapism. It's 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 fantasy. Like, and we know that, but yeah, uh, it's entertainment. Yeah, look look at look I at mean, the title alone, "Night of the Living Dead." That's yeah. like the coolest title. It, it, it you know, and 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 it grabs you. It yeah. grabs you because you know it's going to be a bone chilling thing. But you know what's even scarier? Shit! I, my wife and I were sitting watching the news the other day. Did did you see now? Russia is trying to is 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 trying their new missiles out at um, uh, Ukraine. Yes. And and I'm thinking, <laughs> dude, Ukraine is right there in the in Russia, and they want to bomb these guys. Dude, that scares me more than anything because you know us as USA. Greatest country in the world. I'll never stop believing in that. But damn, dude, we're going to put our noses in that. And what's going to happen? We're all going to wind up paying for that shit. Who knows? That's what bothers me. Yeah. Man, well, must... next on World News Tonight with Sal Velez. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been that sandwich I had. <laughs> Let's get back to Night of the Living Dead here. <laughs> A little bit of like uh, cool like uh, philosophy on Night of the Living Dead here, I thought. Uh, the visceral scenes of the flesh eating that appalled contemporary commentators are also typical of the thematic clash between the self and the other. Uh, making the body into a spectacle of otherness, the Night of the Living Dead offers a vision of the world in, less, in which our own flesh is made to seem strange, disgusting, and gross. Uh, the cannibalism that Romero adds to the zombie mythology wasn't simply a spectacular ploy to drum up controversy or boost ticket sales, but rather a central in the film's provocative vision of individuals being consumed or rather subsumed into the larger group. So Romero takes uh, the paranoid fears of invasion of the body snatchers, in in particular its vision of the mass as a terrifying, homogenous entity that multiplies them several times over. Have you ever kind of made that connection between like invasion of the body snatchers and sure. zombies? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. So by forcing audiences to sit up and recognize the zombie for what it really was, a cadaver, Romero challenged our understandings of the monstrous and our long-held beliefs about the finality of death and asked audiences to confront the horror that lay within them, the otherness of their own flesh. It was a vision that finally gave the zombie film credibility it had previously lacked, and by collapsing the boundaries between the normal and the monstrous, the living and the dead, Romero signaled a new stage in the zombie development and that filmmakers no longer had to hide between half-baked plots and silly special effects. Instead, they could approach it with serious, um, sorry. Instead, they could approach serious issues with a grim apocalyptic emptiness that was shocking and exhilarating in equal measure. You know, I think every zombie film or TV show that's come out after Night of the Living Dead is just trying to be it. Especially like recently oh, yeah. on, on Netflix, there's a pretty cool series called uh, Black Summer. And they're just running away from the zombies. Like the, I mean, the entire both seasons. That's that's what it is. But every, yeah, my brother I, was just telling me about that. Oh, it's that it's a good, good one. It's a pretty good. But it, it seems like everything after Night of the Living Dead is just trying to be it. Oh, totally. When it comes to zombie films, yeah. Are they? Uh, is Black Summer? Are they fast zombies? Or are they? Yes, they are. They oh, are running. You don't like that, Mikey? I don't. And that's that's anti. I mean, George Romero hated that about uh, <laughs> the Dawn of the Dead remake. Zombies don't run, so they're infected people. Okay, <laughs> that's a, they're not zombies. A huge distinction there. Oh yeah, well, they're cool. rabid. 
They're 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 they say that again, Mike. What? Infected people. Oh, you know, man, my first couple of girlfriends, you know, they got infected. <laughs> they, they got infected. <laughs> Sells the disease. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, as Mike was saying earlier, in uh, 1999, when the Misfits released their second post-dancing album, Famous Monsters with Michael Graves, uh, coinciding with the album release was the music video for its first single, Scream, in an auspicious union between the Misfits and the pioneering director, George Romero. Yeah. So the bespectacled Night of the Living Dead helmsman was gearing up to direct his first feature in six years, the odd thriller Bruiser, and happily accepted work on the Scream music video on the condition that the Misfits appear in Bruiser along with two original songs. Yeah, Bruiser's not his best work. No, not at all. I don't think so. No. (laughs) So the four-minute, mostly black-and-white music video for Scream centralizes its visuals around a small hospital overrun by wounded Misfits fans and undead versions of band members themselves. The zombie makeup effects are enormously impressive for what appears to be an otherwise limited production budget. The Misfits crash through medical equipment, soak themselves in the blood of unwitting doctors, and chase a few pretty nurses around the dimly lit halls of the hospital ward. So the video was a fun and appropriate tribute to the original 1968 zombie attack that made Romero a household name. Let's check out a little bit of this real quick. My favorite Misfits song. I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. Sometimes you just got to do it. They kind of scared me. Oh, come on, man. That's that's my favorite Misfits song. I love the Danzig stuff, but that's my favorite Misfits song. It's, it's very uh, back to like kind of like that '50s type of rock and roll. I yeah, think, you, know, you know, you know, you know. I, I, I do wop. I, yeah. I, I gotta ask you guys this. Who's an Oz? I didn't even think about this. Grindhouse movies. Is there? Is there? I never noticed. Is there any punk rock in Grindhouse movies? Actually, the music you hear in Grindhouse films, like exploitation films, yeah, it's more kind of funky, uh, like uh, R and B. Yeah, that you know, like you listen to like uh, Shaft by Isaac Hayes. It's that. You know, a funny one that just popped into my head was the uh, the remake of uh, Funny Games U.S. Oh, when yeah. in the beginning, it's like they're all dressed in like white clothing and everything, and they're driving in the thing, and then he like he presses the the radio, and it's like. <laughs> yes, yes, death metal. <laughs> it's crazy death metal. Yeah. But 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 you know what? Uh, I've always thought, you know, my little brain. I there was so there was so such a great handful of movies. I wish I could have been like a a grip or 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 uh, the lighting guy, Towelboy, uh, <laughs> Best Boy. <laughs> That'd be great to see in the credits. Towelboy, no, Savile. No, no, that was only in the eighties with vivid videos. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about. I, I would have loved to have been an extra. Three movies come right to mind. The first one is uh, Scanners. Okay, yeah. Or and 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 uh, uh, Halloween, the mm-hmm. original Halloween, 
and obviously George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. You say for splatter films? I I, I would have loved to have been an extra or oh, or, or grip or, like, or working or, on the movie. You know, you working on. The, I would have loved to have worked on it because just because it's so cool of <sighs> of, of of our genre genre to come out with something. I mean, if that, you that amazing, if you read up on the history of those movies, those were well, I don't know about Scanners, but those were small budget independent films. Yeah, because cool. you told me that Carpenter had to use his friends and. Oh, you know, sure. He had investors, you know, neighbors, and 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 uh, you know, Nick, that's how Nick Castle got the part. Like Carpenter's, like, "Fuck, I need somebody." Uh, short notice, can you do this? Like, yeah, just, just put yeah. on this mask and walk. And, right. and and that's what kills me, man. I mean, here you're, you know, here you see the Academy Awards, the Emmys, you know, and these they're looking for people. Well, this guy won't work. This lady, you know, is too, you know, blah blah blah. They're too busy. She's too ugly. She's, but but in these in our movies, dude, <laughs> you know. I mean, that's all you see is is our stuff out there. Meaning, like you know, the Misfit shirts, you know, Mikey's got the Black Sabbath shirt, you know, my nephew, blah 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 blah. blah. It's, it's awesome, man. Airhead shirt, yeah, dude. <laughs> I got an Airhead shirt from Creeporama. <laughs> it says Lemmy. Degenerate. Lemmy is God. Yes. <laughs> Which, by the way, did you know that song that they're playing in there? What's Johnny doing out on the Degenerate? Night? It's uh, Reagan Youth. Yeah, Reagan Youth. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Songs for I forget what it is. it's like. Volume one or something like that. It's yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I'll, tell, I'll tell you if I, if I, if somebody if a genie came up in there right now and said Sal, what would you be? I would be a horror actor, man. I seriously mean that. I I would love to be. You want to get typecast? I I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care. You know. I mean, look what I mean. You know. I want to get be in a die in a horror movie, but I want to have them split me from from the top from the bottom, just right down in half. Good. <laughs> have you seen Bone Tomahawk? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man. You know what I think? That, I, yeah, I'll take that. You know what? Uh, Anthony told me about that, Sammy. He said it was brutal and oh, my yeah. son does yeah. anthony will not watch any of my movies at all but he <laughs> i don't know if he's seen this or 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 whatever but he told me to watch it and i i, I gotta watch it oh it's a great yeah. western but i mean we've been it, telling you about this for years yeah <laughs> yeah a lot of gore, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lot of gore. i'm yeah. sorry well just to touch briefly on bruiser um it's the story of a young executive of a publicity agency who's been repressed uh morbid thoughts and uh, is walked over by most of his acquaintances his wife is cheating on him with his boss and stealing his investments with the help of his best friend um his household maid is frequently stealing from his house and insulting him in spanish even his uh, annoying poodle does not respect him so uh while in his daily morning routine listening to a talk show on the radio here's a man commit suicide live on the air because he had been felt uh, been feeling miserable and disrespected for a long time, and he feels impressed with the tragic story. So the next morning, he wakes up to find his face covered in a white mask, changing his personality and allowing him to seek revenge against those who have humiliated him. And uh, by the guy, the, by the way, the guy with the mask on is uh, Jason Fleming. Yeah, yeah, you might know him. Um, which what's, what's some movies he's been in? Benjamin Button. Yeah, yeah, he's a creepy looking guy, but he's yeah. In this movie, he's pretty cool. Um, Peter Stomar has the boss. He's been in like bad, I think bad boys two. He was in, oh, he was one of like the Russian guys. Things. Yeah. Fucking Fargo, man. Yeah. He's, oh yeah. Fargo. That's was he, great. was he the bad guy? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Was he the Russian guy from Armageddon? Maybe Stormir. This guy here. Uh, I think he was. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he was, um, the porn, uh, director in, um, eight millimeter with Nicolas Cage. I yeah. believe you're right. I, I, you know what guys, you plays a good creep. Fun. He is a king of creepy dudes, yeah. but I like him. James he, he, Gandolfini was creepy in oh, yeah, 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 he was. Oh, yeah. And 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 you know what? Let me tell you something. For some strange reason, Eight Millimeter just that film grabbed me. I'm a, I, I like Nicolas Cage, but that was a fantastic film, man. Yeah. I really Great. dug it. Really did. 
that's that that should be an area we uh we check into sooner or later is uh we need to talk about snuff yeah <laughs> i got a huge collection of snuff films so um by the way tom atkins is also in this uh bruiser as the detective yeah who was know. also a carpenter guy he was in a bunch yes. of carpenter stuff yeah he worked with wood <laughs> oh, I wish I had my little monkey. All right. Well, in addition to filming their cameo at the climax of Bruiser, in which they played two songs from famous monsters, uh, Descending Angel and Scream, they also play the two songs written specifically for the film, Bruiser and Fiend Without a Face, which both can be found on the Cuts from the Crypt collection album. Yeah. Here's a little clip of Bruiser for you. <laughs> Nineties Misfits sounds way different than nineteen seventy eight Misfits. They sound more metal. Oh yeah, production wise, especially. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's cleaner. The bands that I listed in the beginning of the episode, a lot of them sound like nineties Misfits. For example, Calibris, yeah, Grave Robber, Blitzkid. They sound like Misfits. They're like clones. So are are are, are Boros, uh eras the same uh, members? No, no. By the way, yeah, this was, I think we brought up uh, this was um, Michael Graves era. Yeah, yeah, like nineties. Mm-hmm. There was a big thing uh, where the Misfits, yeah, they split up in like you know eighty five or something like that. And then for the longest time, like none of them performed as the Misfits. But then I think after you know Metallica and especially after Guns and Roses did a, a cover of Attitude. Attitude, yeah, you got some fucking Attitude. <laughs> yes, so <laughs> there's no, there's which no... is the perfect Guns and Roses song for them to cover. By yeah. the way, Duff sang that. Yeah. So by the way, that's when like Jerry only you know uh, Glenn Danzig was getting the royalties like from that Guns that oh, Guns and uh, Guns and Roses uh, wow. money spaghetti so, incident. Yeah. So Jerry only wanted in on that, and that's when the rest of the Misfits sued. Uh, Glenn Danzig, basically to start performing again as the Misfits, like they got the the, the rights to the name and everything. I think mm-hmm. so, so. So that's when they went out and they got Mikhail Graves to, uh, to basically to sing again, so they could tour and start making money. Who's Who's the founder? Is Danzig the founder of Misfits? Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he so he's, you know, the only original Misfit then right now. No, I mean the band, the Misfits. Jerry was an originator, but like the first two members was Danzig and that other guy. Yeah, Danzig and uh, Manny Martinez yeah. when we did the Cough Cool single. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. And then, um, yeah, they had Jerry uh, Kaifa, Jerry Only, uh, mm-hmm. join the group. So, yeah, they've basically been the first two members of that. Yeah. But, but Jerry Only is still doing it yeah, today. Yeah, there's been so many different incarnations. I mean, they did Riot Fest recently where it was it was Doyle, Jerry, and, and Glenn, maybe – Maybe yeah. some of the of the other old guys, but for the longest time, it's the just it's just guys. been Jerry carrying the torch. <laughs> yeah, they have like uh, people like um, I forget. Uh, oh shit, his name. Um, fucking from the drummer, like the old drummer from 
Black Flag. Oh, they yeah. They have, like, Chuck Biscuits. Right. Like, they have a lot of different drummers that play for them now. On on Famous Graves, it was the guy's name Dr. Chud or... Uh... Dr. Chud, yeah. yeah. Famous Monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, by the way, um, uh, Three Hits from Hell is the sixth release from the Misfits. The seven-inch EP was released in April 1981 via Plan 9 Records. And while there was no actual insert, uh, some of the first pressings included a Misfits Fiend Club ad. This looks awesome. I wish I would have been like around back then. You could send like five dollars and they'll send you a t-shirt. They would send like you would write that like you could write them and be like, yo, I'm just a big fan of your guy. And like maybe <laughs> next month you might get like a random, you know, uh live performance in the mail on vinyl, which is now probably worth upwards of two thousand five thousand dollars. The Misfits records are insane when yeah. it comes to like some of those you know, original pressings. Yeah. Especially because they're like every single pressing was a little bit different or, you know, mm-hmm. slightly different colors on the front. It's it's staggering, like their discography on vinyl. Yeah. Yeah, been, I wish I would have been around during this uh the <laughs> Misfits Fiend Club. So all three songs from Three Hits from Hell were recorded at Master Sound Productions in New York on August 7th, 1980, with Bobby Steele on guitar for the main riff of London Dungeon and producer Robbie Alter playing the chords, uh, while Jerry Only's younger brother Doyle recorded guitar on the rest of the songs on September 5th, 1980, following Bobby's dismissal from the band for not showing up to a session. Also, it was because he, remember I said he had the uh, the Forrest Gump legs? He couldn't rise out of the coffin. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I forgot. He also proposed that the coffin be filled with rats, like New York streets fucking rats. (laughs) So it was during these sessions, by the way, that Doyle officially joined the band as Bobby's replacement. So while none of the other 10 songs from this session were released until 1985, until after the band had broken up, um, all the tracks were later remixed for the 12 Hits from Hell release. Uh, London Dungeon was written by Glenn Danzig about his experience while jailed in Brixton on December 2nd, 1979. And both Horror Hotel and Ghoul's Night Out were also based on horror films. Uh, horror Hotel, a.k.a. City of the Dead, and, 19, uh, and the 1958 Ed Wood film Night of the Ghouls, respectively. So, uh, released in 1961 and also known as City of the Dead, like we said, this early example of English horror features Christopher Lee as one of his uh, most regarded performances. Plot concerns uh, witch, uh, concerns witchcraft in a quiet town in Massachusetts that culminates with a curse placed upon the hotel. We talked about this in our witchcraft episode, by uh, the way. I'm surprised I've never seen this because you, you mentioned this to me that they used scenes in the video for Sleepless Nights by King Diamond. That they did. I'm missing out here. That's pretty good. That's pretty you, you good. Don't say it, Sal. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. What I was going to say was, dude, I mean, again, uh, you know, whether it be the, the poster or the theater cover or whatever, they're brutal. Yeah. Well, dude, this guy's this guy's got a 12-inch blade up a, yeah. up a broad stroke. That's 1961. Yeah. In, yeah. The, in the movie, they uh, they insinuate that she is stabbed in the face during the Candlemas and you know what? And you know what bothers me? Candlemas. You know what bothers me even more? Mm. Well, don't bother me, but... I, I, there's a, there's these tree hooded guys, right? And they got a twelve inch sword against her neck, and I'm looking at her boobies. Of course you are. Okay, that's what makes sell. All right. <laughs> <laughs> He's peeping. So, uh, City of the Dead was originally was written as a uh, <laughs> as a pilot for the horror uh, for a, as a I'm sorry as 
City of the Dead was originally written as the pilot for a horror television series intended to star Boris Karloff. Uh, it was never made into that into a television show, though, obviously. So um, this is also the first movie made by Amicus Productions, one of Hammer's most successful rivals in the 1960s and the 70s. Um, at a time, at the time, this movie, however, the company was known as Vulcan Productions. Hmm. Yeah, we talked about Amicus. They did uh, like um, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, all those old those. British ones. Yeah. So in the movie, a young co-ed uses her winter vacation to research a paper on witchcraft in New England. Her professor, Christopher Lee, recommends that she spend time in a small village named Whitewood. He originally came from the village, and he recommends she stay in the Raven's Inn run by a Mrs. Newless. Uh, when she arrives at Whitewood, she notices the macabre happenings. Soon, things begin to happen, and in earnest, she finds herself marked for sacrifice by the undead coven of witches. Um, it seems that the innkeeper is actually the undead spirit of Elizabeth Sulin, um, and the guests at the inn are are the other witches who have come to celebrate the sacrifice on Candlemas Eve. So, by the way, Candlemas is the Sabbath associated with the first stirrings of spring, dairy products, and the lengthening of days as summer approaches. Although Candlemas is mentioned in this film, it's uh, generally not one of the Sabbaths where scores of malicious spirits roam the earth. Um, those are the uh, well, Purgus not the night. Uh, well, Purgus, yeah, the Purgus, uh, the night, the night of Purgus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also known as the uh, the Beltran Sabbath or May Day is a pagan holiday, um, and <laughs> Halloween or Samhain, All Hallows Eve. Candlemas How- is also. I'm sorry to cut you off. Candlemas is also the name of a Swedish doom metal band. They're probably them and like trouble from Chicago put doom metal on the map. So there you go. Useless knowledge of the day. Doom. Right. <laughs> Slow and heavy. That's right. Think Black Sabbath. So uh, the Raven's Inn proprietor, uh, Mrs. Newless, who turns out, in fact, to be none other than the witch Elizabeth Sewin, um, reincarnate as a phonetically reversible surname that points to her true character in the movie. Um, this is a trick frequently used in vampire movies and literature. You guys ever, uh, you know, any other vampires that maybe do that? Hmm. I'm trying to think of it. Let's see. There we go, Mikey. The chains. Yeah. She's chained and I bound. I love chains. Yeah, that's the beginning of this movie. She's chained up and uh, I think we, well, in, our, in our witchcraft episode, Mike, a... Mike did the lines that she reads as Jason Statham. <laughs> oh, did I? You got some more for me? I don't got him uh... in this. So, do you want some? I can pull him up. <laughs> Oi, mate, you got me tied to the bloody stake. <laughs> oh, pledge more so to thee, Satan. Yeah. <laughs> I wish fucking Jason Statham would be in a demonic movie. I'm sorry. I'm a big fan of his, Mikey. I'm sorry, man. He's he's. I like him, dude. Well, then you got shit taste in film. (laughs) I watch Toby. I know. I know. Come on, Jason Statham is brilliant, (laughs) magnificent. He fought a shark. (laughs) It's a bloody megalodon. <laughs> Look at my big not bald just, head. Not just any shark, a megalodon. A fucking megalodon. <laughs> oh, uh, well, uh, although similar to Psycho in that a young blonde woman driving alone to a strange motel gets killed partway through the movie, uh, City of the Dead is not a copycat, for it was actually uh, in production prior to Psycho, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking inspiration from the plot, Danzig here imagines himself checking into the horror hotel and rather than becoming a victim of the curse, he joins in on the evil debauchery, partying with the underworld scum and necking with his vampire girlfriend. Let's do this. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> I made you jump. God damn it. That made me jump you know as what? bad as the Terrifier. I'll tell you what, so they do actually have something in common with Ramones. Their songs are short and sweet. Yeah, but I would ha- I my you know what my you know what my song would be? Mm. And you know who would sing it? Mm. Joan Jett, and it would be Horror Hotel. <laughs> okay. Horror Hotel. Horror Hotel. Joan Jett. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Why would it be the Horror Hotel? Why not? Okay. Sounds like you're running a brothel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forget. Oh, I think it was uh, on the No Dogs in uh, Space podcast when they're talking about they do a Misfits biography on them. Uh, one uh, one of the part, one of the hosts he starts singing. He's like uh, talking about the Misfits being in a Kia commercial. Like I got something to say. Dun, dun, dun. I bought a Kia today oh, no. and it doesn't matter much to me as long as it's red. <laughs> So, uh, by the way, Iron Maiden uses uh, scenes from this film in the uh, music video for their song, uh, Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, oh, yeah. as does punk band UFX in, in their video to their song, Bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, as Mike said, King Diamond also uses this yeah! in his Sleepless Nights video. Beep this. Yeah, but you my know what? Favorite. You know what? You know what, dudes? I, I, Mikey's gonna kill me. I've this is the first time I've ever heard anything from King Diamond. Well, that's really? a good song to begin and, with. And, and let me tell you something. Not his... even when I played it the first time on our witchcraft. <laughs> 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 I wasn't paying attention. Uh, first of all, his band sounds like uh, like um, Ozzy's, and second of all, he's his makeup reminds me of Rob Zombie's. So uh, right there, he's cool. But uh, he he kind of predates well, not Ozzy, but he definitely predates. Rob, Rob Zombie. No, no, no. The yeah. song, the the the, makeup. the 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 no, not the make the uh music. The band sounds like music band, and and yeah. he he's he looks like a misfit from uh, Rob Zombie. He's carried the torch for metal for years, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. he's cool. He's I cool. know we're about two hours into this already right now, but we're gonna do a Joe Rogan thing right now, and Mike's gonna go into the entire history of King Diamond. <laughs> oh God, clear and concisely. We, do it now, Mike. We go. do not have enough time. <laughs> To talk about the man, but but okay. a lot of people, you know what, you know what's cool? He'll a get lot, his own episode. We're gonna do an episode. Oh yeah, for sure. A lot of people wouldn't notice even as this big ass TV showing him with the upside down crosses. Oh, he, he's he's totally admits to being a Satanist. Yeah, like like my wife, God bless her, she wouldn't even notice the skull in the flame of the candle. <laughs> his rings, you know? Yeah, he no. Oh, the on, the, on the flame. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's that's me. I'd I'd, I'd want to be a, like a. Like I think his dude. early makeup looks like Ultimate Warrior. Oh, really? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> well, in that look, video we just watched, you, you, it did too. You look for... at his old uh, Merciful Fate stuff, like fucking Gene Simmons sued him or tried to sue him for like uh, 
Infri- infringement. Oh, come on. Like, oh, that was my makeup first. You come copied on. it. No. He's very private with his yeah. religious beliefs, but he, yeah. he has no problem admitting, yeah, he is I, a Satanist. I don't have a problem with that. I, I, you know what? You believe in what you want, but I kind of dig his Rob Halford voice. He's got, he's got, you know, he's got yeah, a good Yeah, I mean, it's the falsetto. Yeah. He, no one can do yeah. it like him. Yeah. There's many guys that can do it uh, similar, and then there's people that probably did it before him, too, like he yeah. said, Rob Halford, but the king is the fucking best at the he, falsetto. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, 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 I'm impressed. I, yeah. I like it, Mike. I like I'll, it. I'll, like I'll, I'll, I'll make these. a whole list okay. for you to check no, out. No, I'm serious. <laughs> Dudes, I'm serious. I, I'm, you know, I might go What's home it? and... I think so. I would like, uh, what is that, where it's like 1777 Abigail, start with Abigail. That's his best album. Sleepless Nights, what you heard, that's off his fourth one, Conspiracy. Okay. Start with Abigail. It's his second album. That is the best King oh, Diamond I have to bring it up it, to you, by the way. Did you see they did like an Abigail graphic novel? Like uh, They did. They, that yeah. came out uh, last year. Yeah. And Mike, when 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 did this guy come out? When did King Diamond come out? Merciful Fate started in like maybe 79 and then oh, he shit. And, then, around, and then he uh well he, he was in bands before that but nothing like okay. that was like signed to a major label okay his solo band king diamond started 86 wow so 86 and yeah. he was 79 he the merciful fate started in 1979 wow he's yeah. been around the block as much as my ex-girlfriend from copenhagen denmark all right well let's also also um this uh rob zombie um, and Dragula, yeah, Deluxe. Um, he has the clip from uh, Christopher Lee in the beginning of his song. This clip right here: superstition, fear, and jealousy. I'm sure you recognize that from oh, yeah. this song right here. Dragula. Great album too. Yeah, this is an amazing album. <laughs> Spook show, baby. What if, what if what if somehow we got invited to his house and Sherry answers the door? Hey, where's Rob? He's watching TV in the living room. We go in there, he's watching Family Affairs or <laughs> Brady Bunch or something. If I met her, all I, I would do monsters. <laughs> all I would do would, would be like spit out like Captain Spaulding quotes to her. <laughs> Tootie fucking fruity, you know. Tootie fucking fruity. His house is fucking sweet though. I've seen a couple things like on cribs or whatever. Oh, He's just got oh, like all his old memorabilia and shit. Oh yeah. no shit! Is it, it is it huge, Sammy? Uh, well, yeah. His collection's gotta be. No, no, no. I mean, his house is it, is it a huge? Um, I think oh, it was. Yeah, I don't think he has that house anymore. But oh. yeah, was it was it like uh, uh, Ozzy's with all the crosses all over the place? <laughs> no, it's just awesome. Like Monster like, stuff, like a Gill Man over oh, here, or a Wolf Man over here. Yeah, seriously. He's just got a lot of old see, memorabilia. That would, that would be my house. He's big man. into uh, the uh, Universal monsters, oh, just like see. Kirk Hammett. Kirk Hammett's house is like a museum. 
Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw when we were doing when I was doing uh, my uh, Vampira uh, stuff. She used to have these dope glasses. They were like uh, like bats. Uh, Kirk Hammett has those now. He like wow. he owns those. Yes. Wow. See, that's why I'd like to see like um, uh, Cameron's house or uh, uh, Cameron the rapper. Uh, no. <laughs> Jim Cameron. <laughs> Jimmy, or, old or, Jimmy Cameron, or, or even, that's how you know you're tight with him. Is, or even is Jimmy? <laughs> Jimmy took me down to see the Titanic on his fucking <laughs> submersible. <laughs> or, or, or even better, Stan Winston. I mean, I would love to have seen rest in peace. Yeah, their houses if they had all the guys, you know, like Pumpkinhead and. You know, Savini's got a huge collection of masks in his house in yeah, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh, does he? Yep. Yeah, he's got a whole like uh, thing where he makes them all and everything, like different uh, characters and stuff, mm-hmm. and just make, hangs them on the oh, wall. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he, he has, can see. He his, can make that shit himself. His, okay. Yeah, well, his school's down there in Pittsburgh too. He teaches makeup. Well, the Misfits uh, also provided a temperate for uh, spo- a succession of spookier, more aggressive horror rock acts, uh, such as King Diamond or White Zombie, uh, the later being a lo-fi punk band, which uh, formed by Parsons School of Design students Sean Salt and Rob Cummings in 1995. Uh, they mutated the basic Misfits vibe into a heavy metal beast that groomed along, I'm sorry, grooved along on crushing riffs and undead slock for over a decade. Rob Cummings, of course, would later christen himself as Rob Zombie, and he's admitted to openly worshipping the Misfits in his youth. Oh, yeah. He's a huge Misfits fan. For sure. So um, let's move to another topic of worship, Fanatic. Um, under its uh, its original title, uh, Fanatic, uh, but for the United States release, it, the title was changed to Die, Die, My Darling, a takeoff of Betty Davis's Hush, Hush, Sweet Harlot, uh, Charlotte, I'm sorry, from 1964. So this uh, fairly compelling Anglo Giallo film is a 1965 Hammer film production starring Tallulah Bankhead and her final film performance as a demented zealot. You guys seen this recently? Uh, I don't think I've ever seen Die, Die, My Darling. What, what, the, what the fuck is a zealot? A is it zealot. Just... Yeah, it's someone who's is crazy some... about religion. Oh, I thought that was a breakfast burrito or something. I don't know. <laughs> a zealot. A zealot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You want a zealot? That's so, Jimmy, uh, you're thinking Jimmy Dean's. <laughs> Jimmy Dean's. <laughs> Give me some of them zealot breakfast sauces, yeah. boy. <laughs> So after the successful casting of aging glamour stars Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane in 1962... That's a great one. Hammer Films followed the trend by assigning the legendary Tallulah Bankhead for Fanatic. However, her legendary status is hard to document these days since her greatest success success was on stage. Um, She only made 17 movies and her last film appearance prior to Fanatic was 12 years earlier in 1953's Main Street to Broadway... Uh, still, she was to, she was a name to many and, on the surface, quite a catch. Uh, she was even honest enough to admit that she only took the part in Fanatic because she needed the money. <laughs> yeah, so this film is about a woman named Patricia, played by Stephanie Powers, who arrives in England to meet her fiancé, Alan. But before they get married, she feels that she must visit the mother of her former lover, Stephen, who was killed in a car crash. So against Alan's wishes, Patricia drives to the secluded estate of Mrs. Trefoil, played by Tallulah Bankhead. Um, the household is made up of the maid, Anna, Youth of Joyce, um, her husband, Harry, uh, played by Peter Vaughn, and Joseph, a mentally challenged handyman, played by Donald Sutherland. <laughs> Sal, I knew you would like this, because he is... Listen, um, <laughs> listen, listen, okay. This is what industry terms calls going full retard. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. That's the one time I'm going to say it. Never, let, never go full retard. Let me, let, me, let me put it in a nice way. He's pale as a ghost. He displays a <laughs> dazzling amount of strength. 
and he has an extremely poor vocabulary. Watch this. Watch this scene real quick. He comes in. He appears out of nowhere. There's that strength. <laughs> Listen how he talks. What I do with him, eh? I don't know. Put him at the garage. No, can't. Nice lady car. No. Might scratch. No, no. Harry's got the car in London. No. Sorry, it's mine. <laughs> yes, he is very special. Uh, <laughs> no, dead. lady's car. Might scratch. No. He <laughs> was great in fucking Animal House, man. The dead little bus yeah. dropped this dude off. <laughs> Oh man, he nah, he's never been on any buses before. They kept him in a dungeon. <laughs> you see how pale he was? <laughs> oh, that was great, Sammy C. So uh Mrs. Trefoil, a former actress herself, <laughs> is now a religious fanatic to whom everything is sinister, including Patricia, who she regards as Stephen's wife. So when uh, Pat reveals that she was planning a breakup when he died, Mrs. Trefoil goes mad and imprisons her daughter-in-law in an attempt to purify her sins, cleanse her soul, and make her pure for her beloved son. Uh, the entire household conspires to terrify Patricia and attempts to bribe her way out, prove fruitless. Uh, when she should seduces Harry to get his car keys, Mrs. Trefoil finds the pair struggling on a bed and fires Henry from the house. Angered at losing his position at the estate, Harry follows Mrs. Trefoil into the basement, and when he confronts her, she shoots him point blank in the face. <laughs> this is great, and this is like kind of how it's like kind of a giallo film. There's like a lot of bright color in the basement where you're Look like, at this guy. you're like, where the fuck is that coming from? All these greens and purples. I think it's uh, an Argento giallo. Look yeah, at his yeah. haircut. This guy's just eating a block of cheese, roaming around the basement. <laughs> is he special, to... Sammy? <laughs> no, this guy's normal. Is he Charlie from It's Always Sunny? <laughs> eating cheese? No, that's Donald Sutherland in this movie. He's doing Charlie work for sure. <laughs> yeah, she pops out from behind a door. A little pea shooter. <laughs> <laughs> Those little spots are supposed to be gunshots. <laughs> Yeah, the gore in this movie is not good at all. Oh my god! It's like a Walter PP seven. <laughs> it looked like someone just took a took a sharpie and drew little dots on Mikey, his face. Mikey, a what? Oh, you know, from James Bond gun, the Walter PP seven. Yeah. It's a pea yeah. shooter. Look at that thing. Yeah. You could hide that in her snatch. I, I used to, I used to use one of those guns when I was a prostitute. <laughs> right, you hid it in her snatch. He said, but Sammy, he said PP. <laughs> a Walter PP seven. Yeah. James a, Bond issue. A James Bond shooter. <laughs> Hand hey, me the shooter. Hand me my pee-pee. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Tulula Bankhead proved to be, in show business jargon again, somewhat difficult. Uh, for instance, when production designer Peter Proud decorated the set with memorabilia from her early career, she threw a tantrum at first feeling it was disrespectful. Uh, remember, by the way, her character was an actress in the movie. She also threw occasional tantrums and walked off the set three times. Uh, there was also a problem with the the audio when Tallulah Bankhead uttered the infamous line, you must die, die, my darling. Ah. So uh, Bankhead later had to loop the dialogue. She arrived inebriated at the law, uh, I'm sorry, at a New York recording studio four hours late, and it took her the rest of the day to properly dub the line. <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> I assume it was a waste of time for everybody trying to get the one fucking line yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> Just... <laughs> it's, a, it's a great misfit song. Where's my pee-pee? Yeah. <laughs> So let's hear that line real quick, since you guys haven't heard it. Yeah. Just heard Stephen's voice, and I know what I must do. I don't 
hope to cleanse your soul before releasing you. Now it's too late. That man will be back here, perhaps this very day. Therefore, you and Stephen must be reunited now. You must die. Die, my darling. Yeah, it's weird. In the movie, it's it's unsynced. You could tell it's like <laughs> she had to redo it. But she also has that voice that's like you could tell she'd been smoking four packs of cigarettes yeah. a day. A bottle thought, of whiskey. I thought she was going to start making out with her. <laughs> nope. She's dying. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, so when uh, she drags uh, the woman in the basement, you find out why it's so colorful downstairs. Um, she has um, like all of her bright, colorful clothing and artwork. There's stained glass down there. There's plenty of mementos from her time as a dancer and an actress. So uh, not only is she a fanatic, she's also a hypocrite. <laughs> There's a moment where she snaps in this film, too, and she runs upstairs, like, into her. She got a secret stash of lipstick, and she puts it on like a crazy person. Oh, boy. The fucking lipstick is all over the fucking oh side of her face. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, like uh, Peter Griffin does that, I think. <laughs> it's a psycho thing. <laughs> Same with Steve Buscemi and Billy Madison. Oh, That's yeah. one of my favorite parts. <laughs> so, uh, Patricia's fiance, Alan, tracks her to the house and is told that she is gone, but recognizes her brooch on a local barmaid's sweater, which is a gift from Harry, who was cheating on his wife. Alan returns to the house in time to save Patricia, who was about to be killed by a Mrs. Trefoil, to be reunited with the dead Stephen. But uh, Anna, <laughs> after finding Harry's corpse, stabs Mrs. Trefoil in the back, who dies embracing her son's portrait. So, uh, by the way, the portrait is really creepy. It feels like uh, like the facial expressions like change from time to time. Kind of like, uh, you ever seen The Lady Killers with uh, yes, Tom Hanks? Yes, yes, How the picture keeps changing. Like, <laughs> is, that, is that Luke Skywalker? <laughs> Mark Hamill's? No. Yeah, is that Mark Hamill? It looks no. like Luke Skywalker. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's weird. It's, the, the, the painting's eyes are black. No wonder Stephen killed himself in a like car. Like a shark. Like a shark. <laughs> so, uh, Die, Die, My Darling was uh, the aptly named Misfits single Glenn Danzig issued via Plan 9 Records in May of 1984, seven months after the band's demise. Um, it was recorded in August 1981 during uh, sessions for Walk Among Us, but not included on the album. The song was remixed and added to the international version of the Earth AD Wolf's Blood album and subsequent issues of Earth's AD Wolf's Blood, in addition to being released as the Die, Die My Darling single. You know, it's so weird like how their songs come out like years after they've broken up. Between like, you know, when they broke up in the 80s yeah. and when they reunited in the 90s with Michael Graves, they, there were so many releases, but it was like, okay, well, the band's not even around anymore. Why, why bother putting it out there but there was huge fans of them so they wanted to hear it like static age didn't get released till 97 yeah and it was recorded in what 77 or i, I think it was yeah 78 78 yeah. that's almost 20 years and it's cr- like yeah their discography is extremely confusing it when is you, go into it you don't know what's an yeah. album what's an ep yeah Especially because there's like there's like four or five different versions of songs too, where yes. like you know there'll be like a session recording here, and then there'll be like one that's you know the whole a whole band recorded live in a studio, and then there's like another version that Glenn Danzig decided like he was gonna put his he own pull, guitars. Yeah. Oh, over. oh, I pulled this one out of my ass. Yeah, this is this is one that's been hidden, yeah. you know, locked up in a vault or something. There was also um, allegedly like a bunch of stuff that they recorded <laughs> Dan- that Danzig Dan- like <laughs> locked away and wouldn't let them. Yeah, it's like Danzig is punk rock's prince. <laughs> Where everything he puts shit in the vault for years and never gets released. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some. I think there's like they 
someone said there's like a whole album that they recorded somewhere that Glenn Danzig claims like he lo- was like lost or just like started Prince. in a fire. But they think a lot of people think he's just being a dickhead because he doesn't want to like share <laughs> just any like royalties Prince. or anything. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, the cover, the cover of the single is derived from the cover of the September 1953 issue number 19 of the comic book Chamber of Thrills. You ever heard of Chamber of Thrills? No, I don't know that one. Never yeah, heard of it. I don't think I've ever heard of that one either. It must have been uh, kind of an unknown one there. So the song is a threatening staccato march in which the protagonist threatens an unknown victim with the future of entrapment in an oblong box. Uh, Die, die, my darling, would prove a powerful final stamp for the band and would in time become one of the most revered Misfits songs. Let's give a listen. You you got something to say? You got something to say? I got something to say. (laughs) Oblong box is another word for coffin. Yeah. Your future's in an oblong box, yeah. Real. to admit a lot of their songs got a huge resurgence because of other bands covering them specifically metallica yes. when they put out garage uh incorporated and in, uh was it 98 yeah 99 uh how many people ran out to get the original version by misfits probably oh, it, you know a ton of people it says it reached number 26 on the billboards mainstream rock charts in the united states the, so the that's their, huge their cover oh yeah yeah yeah, that was, yeah, that was die die my uh, on the uh, the Grajinka. Grajinka. Yeah, but a lot of bands do that, Mikey. A lot of bands take other people's. Well, they 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 do covers, but I mean, okay. Like I said, you know, so many bands have covered Misfits. The band got a big resurgence, I think, in the '90s as well, because uh, like Metallica and other other bands covering them. People like those songs so much, like, and then they find out oh, that's a cover. And they're like, what? Oh, who did the original? Well, Misfits. Then they go back and look at Misfits, and it's like, oh, wow, these are these guys are so great. How come I've been missing out on them over the years? Well, because they weren't around. Yeah. They broke up in the 80s, you know? I remember that. That's how I got into the Misfits was uh, through Die, Die, My Darling. Yeah. And, yeah, Metallica. Really, Sammy? Yeah, yeah. Metallica. Wow. Yeah, I think I might have been in like sixth grade when that came out or something. Maybe Damn. No, even no. Well, 98. No, I would have been like 11, so... Yeah, older than that. I think it might have been uh, maybe Last Caress I heard first from them. Mm. I thought that was weird when I found. I was like, wait a minute, that's not their music. It's some <laughs> other band. Right? Well, you listen. To, I mean, Garage Incorporated is, is uh, it's a double album. It's two CDs, and it's pretty much every single song Metallica has ever covered. But then in '98, it was new covers, and I think there's probably still people that are, you know. <laughs> I'm a big music fan, as you can tell. 
but people thought those were original Metallica songs. And then <laughs> you you know you go back and you read the liner notes like, oh, they didn't they didn't write these. This is you know their covers. But uh, yeah, no, I think they got a big resurgence in the nineties. Yeah, what's the name of the song? Here I go oh, uh, on the road again. <laughs> Or turn the page. Turn the page, Bob Seger. Yeah, when I first heard the original of that, I was like, "Wait a minute, what the fuck? This guy's covering Metallica." <laughs> saxophone. <laughs> oh yeah, it is a saxophone yeah, on the original. It's Bob Seger, bro. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. Well, the Oblong Box, by the way, is a 1969 British horror film directed by Gordon Hessler, and the first film to star both Vincent Price and Christopher Lee together. Although it was the, the uh, first team up was far from satisfying, as Lee was given a small role and uh, barely had any screen time with Prince. When he was asked why he agreed to accept such a small part in the film, Lee replied simply, I did it because I wanted to do a picture with Vincent Price. Have you guys seen The Oblong Box? No. I hated it. You didn't like this? I didn't oh, like it at all. this is a great movie. I like you it. You know, it, it started off okay. Price did a lot of Poe movies. You know, it, and mm-hmm. Edgar Allan, I, I don't disrespect him at all, but... It, it uh, I mentioned to to you guys before there was this movie called The Shuttered Room, and basically this was kind of you know uh, similar to it, but it it didn't do much for me at all. I I'd have mm. to say my favorite Price Poe movie would be uh, Red Mask of Death. Didn't that's see that. a good one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That. that one's awesome. Yeah, sometimes some of those that take place in you know like the eighteen hundreds could be a little taxing for me. Like some of those Hammer films can get a little the period no, pieces. No, yeah. Now, Sammy, I. I seen this on Plex, and I asked you about it, and you said to watch it. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the one where uh, he has his brother locked up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the, the only and I told you guys before, I hate this. The only thing that aggravated me is they didn't show his face till almost the end with the brother upstairs oh. and and it just like come on you know it, it was you know and i'm a huge vincent price fan and christopher lee but it, it was a little slow for me a little slow for me <laughs> so uh, well there's one part yeah you i'm surprised you didn't like the scene where uh vincent price tramples the child with a horse <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I didn't> like <laughs> that. Jesus. yeah well as we said uh this is uh the plot is loosely based on uh uh, 1844 Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Oblong Box. It explores and combines several of Poe's favorite themes, such as premature burial and masked figures, and combines them with a non-Poe theme of voodoo ritual killings. Yeah, you really child like killings. So I was like, you, yes! Mikey, you know, what the, you know what the horse ran over the little kid? You know what the... Were you cheering or what? You know what the little kid said? He said, nay! <laughs> <laughs> He said, quit horsing around. <laughs> You're a fucking dork, man. That's funny as hell. He's been cracking himself up for a minute Ooh, straight on that. Oh, boy. <laughs> when he ran over that little kid, man, I just... <laughs> Hello, I'm Mr. Ed. Wilbur. <laughs> man, those hooves hurt me. Hoofs. <laughs> hoofs. Hoofs. Uh, so in the film, by the way, if you don't know... um. It includes a nobleman, Julian Markham, uh, Vincent Price in the film, a nobleman, the nobleman, uh, yeah, Julian Markham, uh, keeps his facially disfigured and violent brother, Sir Edward Markham, locked up in an attic in, in an attic room. Sorry, I can't talk again. Uh, Sir Edward suffers from a curse brought upon him by an African witch doctor years earlier as retaliation for the murder of a child. So uh, with the help of a crooked family lawyer, they uh, hire uh, another witch doctor to concoct a drug to put Sir Edward into a death-like trance in order for him to escape his brother's confinement. 
um, when Julian believes his brother has died, he is sealed in his coffin, hence the title Oblong Box, and buried in the local cemetery where he's supposed to be quickly exhumed by the lawyer. But uh, Sir Edward is left buried until he is dug up by grave robbers and delivered to Dr. Newhart, prayed by Christopher Lee. Uh, Newhart opens the coffin, is confronted by the resurrected Sir Edward, and with his firsthand knowledge of Newhart's illegal activities, Sir Edward blackmails the doctor into sheltering him. Sir Edward then conceals his face behind a crimson red hood and embarks on a vengeful killing spree. You like the part where he kills the hooker cell? No, I'm just I'm just <laughs> digging that he was the the first uh, rising of the gimp. <laughs> he does look it's like the gimp. Leather. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what really you know what really just killed me for this movie? The 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 um the the uh, voodoo guy was getting paid by uh, Vincent Price and, and the guy for 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 the resurrection of, of people, and I'm like, okay, what does the Ooga Booga dude need with with money? <laughs> what what the fuck is that about, Mikey? I Ooga just Booga. thought it was weird. He gets cursed by a witch doctor in Africa, and then he comes back to America and finds another witch doctor. Yeah, and 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 then they're paying they're paying him big money for it. Ooh, uh, uh. Yeah, the, the, the Ooga Booga guy is like, hey man, where's where, where's my doe player? And they didn't have it, so you know, you know. Wing bang, walla walla wing bang. <laughs> so Christopher Lee says that he played the role of the anatomist as a man who was driven by his demon, partly for decent reasons, but everything got out of control because he couldn't stop. He was a man who, in the interests of science, wanted to learn about the human body and was reduced to dealing with grave robbers and resurrectionists, causing him to become a bad character. I think that's kind of my favorite part of this film is, like, Christopher Lee's part in it. Hmm. He's kind of evil. He's, he plays a good bad guy. <laughs> or he did. Yeah, so with the help of the witch doctor, Edward learns the truth about his time in Africa and the reason why he was disfigured. In a case of mistaken identity, he was punished for his brother's crime of killing an African child. Like we said, Vincent Price kills a child by trampling him <laughs> with a horse. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, so in the end, um, Edward, uh, Julian shoots Edward, but is bitten on the hand before he succumbs to death. Once again, in his oblong box, Sir Edward is then resurrected by the vengeful witch doctor, but this time he is six feet under with no hopes of escape. Meanwhile, back at the Markham Mansion, Elizabeth finds Julian in Edward's old room. When she asks him what he's doing there, he tells her it is his room and turns to reveal that his face is becoming disfigured since Edward's bite has passed on the horrible disease to Julian. Oh. So this is the one thing I don't like about this movie. It's supposed <laughs> to be a curse, but it seems like it's just a communicable disease. <laughs> <laughs> It's just rabies? Looks like a dog's been chewing on his face. It's, it's yeah. mouth and hoof disease. Oh, man. It's about, you're, you're all about to get the African variant. Here it comes. <laughs> He's like, Edward Price, or, I'm sorry, Vincent Price is like, oh, no. Oh, no. I should it's just so funny. This, I mean, this movie's kind of weird, but like the Misfits chose this one to write a song about. Yeah, your future's in an oblong box. Is that just uh, you're buried alive, undead for all of you're, eternity you're now? You're going to be in a casket, yeah. <laughs> So, by the way, the original script had the Markham brothers as twins, both played by Vincent Price. That would have been an interesting movie. He's kind of doing the going the uh, the Eddie Murphy route. Before like, <laughs> Vincent Price is like, yes, I have a movie coming out. I play the grandmother in a fat suit. I play oh, the brother with a facial prosthetics. <laughs> All right, well, uh, the course of the slasher film was not determined, as most assume, in the shower of the base motel, 
but a small drive-in theater in, of all places, Peoria, Illinois. Uh, the theater was chosen not for its visibility, but for its isolation. See, if the uh, picture it was showing flopped, as it was expected, no one would ever know. But little did the patrons at that small Midwestern theater realize was they were about to make history. As for the next 75 minutes, they were treated to a spectacle, the likes of which had never been seen before. Amputation, scalping, flagellation, mutilation, tongue ripping, eyeball gouging, and brain stealing are all shown in bl- full blood red color. Sal, are you in familiar blood with feast? Are you are you familiar with flagellation? Uh, yeah, isn't that when something goes up your booty? No, that, that's when you get whipped. Whipped. Oh, like cool whipped by a horsefly. <laughs> by some reeds, you get beaten with reeds. Horsefly, get it, horsefly. <laughs> Self-flagellation is a thing. Oh, yeah. People do that. What was the, the first season of, uh, was it Boardwalk Empire? The cop? He just goes back to his room every night and whips himself with his belt. And he's got a fucking... <laughs> I've been bad. I've been bad. Yeah, so... Blood Feast. Herschel Gordon Lewis. I've met him at a convention once. I don't Chicago, know. Chicago, dude. Yeah, I don't know if he's still alive. Wasn't he a weird no, dude, he's dead. Wasn't he a weird dude, Mike? I think a couple years ago. I mean, he made some weird movies, but... Uh, Fun, some some really fun ones like Two Thousand Maniacs is pretty fun. Yeah, was he a weird guy? Well, he was known by such colorful monikers as the Godfather of Gore, yeah, the Sultan of Sleaze, the Baron of Blood, and the Mad Hatter of Splatter. Yeah, he single-handedly invented the gore film, and uh, ironically, it's the atrocious acting, laughable, laughably extreme violence, bargain basement special effects, and subtle touches of black humor which is are all hallmarks of a, a Lewis film, and the very aspects which prevented him from ever breaking into the mainstream, which, by the way, have endeared him to fans for nearly 40 years now, just like the Misfits. They gave him have a you... great shout-out in the movie Juno with the Ellen Page. or What they say in that? Well, she's she was... Uh... Excuse me, sir. It's Elliot Page <sighs> oh, now. She... Yuck. <laughs> Shave your armpits. Anyways... Um... <laughs> She's talking about how uh, Suspiria is Dario Argento's best movie, and then uh, Justin Bateman's like, uh, have you heard of H.G. Lewis? And he put on Blood Feast, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. Blood Feast. You guys have both seen this, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, fun movie. I think I they've like, remade it a few kinda, times. I look at Herschel Gordon Lewis as kind of Ed Wood with blood with I, splatter. I, I was thinking about that. I was yeah. thinking about that. So uh, consider the first ever splatter film. Lewis was inspired to make Blood Feast after seeing Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Uh, Lewis wanted to make a film that showed what Psycho didn't. Bloodfeast really put director Hershon Gordon Lewis on the map, causing him to pivot from a career path of producing forgettable, softcore nudie schlock into the bloodmaster general of indie film, beca- uh, being the oldest film on the UK list of official video nasties. Video nasties. Is, 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 that, is, that a, is that a worm coming out of her nipple? A worm? No. Yeah. What is no. that? Suds. So that's the the first scene in the beginning when uh, the guy he chops her uh, he takes her eyeball out. I think he chops off her leg. That's not suds. Look at that. That's like a wormy soap. thing. It's soap. There's no worms coming out of titties in this movie. I mean, look. It looks like it's hooking out of her. It looks like a mealworm. A mealworm coming out of her nipple. So uh, Lewis was always upfront about his motivations in filmmaking. He just wanted to make money, and with the nudie film trend winding down lewis and producer david friedman needed to come up with a new kind of film that they knew the major studios wouldn't try to do uh, they decided to make a film featuring explicit gore that was filmed in miami in only nine days and cost just under twenty five thousand dollars but earned back millions for its creator and its associates so uh like we said um the 
basically the, the success was due in part to Friedman's shrewd publicity stunts, which included distributing vomit bags to theater goers, which read, <laughs> you may need this when you see Blood Feast. And secretly obtaining an injunction against the film in Sarasota, Florida, which only naturally drummed up more interest in the film. It's kind of an interesting tactic is kind of getting an injunction to not have your movie shown in a theater. <laughs> but see, that makes more people go to them, man. Yeah, it does. It's like the parental advisory sticker. Parental advisory sticker, Mikey. So the plot revolves around an Egyptian caterer, Fwad Ramsey, um, killing various women around in, in suburban Miami to use their body parts to create a blood feast and awaken a dormant Egyptian goddess named Ishtar via human sacrifice. This one, this movie's been kind of remade with different titles, but it's like the same uh, basis uh, with you know the whole thing with the you know Egypt and. Uh, I know they made a Blood Feast 2. There, yeah, there's been remakes and sequels. And then there's, like I said, the, the whole premise has been used in uh, other films. Like there's an 80s slasher, Blood something. I'm going to look it up right now. Blood Diner. Blood Diner. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yes. I love it. That's that was, it. That was, oh, was supposed to be like a sequel to this. Yeah, it's a comedy, hmm. kind of. Blood Diner. It's about two brothers who will run a diner and they're, they just <laughs> kill women and they, they actually start uh, – they just start serving up body parts to people, and people are like, this is the goddamn greatest motherfucking thing I ever had before. <laughs> I think it takes place in like the heart of New York City, doesn't it? Something like that. But like, there, No one there's... smells all that flesh cooking. Yeah, they're, they're I don't know if they're cannibals, but they're, they're serving people to people. Nice. And uh, there's wrestling, and it's, it's a funny movie. Yeah, check out Blood Diner. Yep. So uh, Fouad Ramsey's was described by author Christopher Wayne Curry in his book, A Taste of Blood, the films of Herschel Gordon Lewis, as the original machete-wielding madman and the forerunner to similar characters such as Jason in Friday the 13th and Michael Myers in Halloween. Yeah. I never uh, put that together before I read if, that. If you listen to Herschel Gordon talk like in his interviews or narration, his narration was like, crystal clear like his he had a voice for like radio it was it was awesome well he was in the advertising industry that's probably why yeah, he started off like yeah in chicago doing it was like it was like an ad executive cool yeah so um by the way connie Hello. mason who plays Hello. suzette friedman was a playboy uh magazine's playmate of the month in june 1963 she was also a playboy bunny at the playboy club in chicago uh, she also started another lewis film uh, 2000 maniacs which is a good one yeah yeah, Blood Feast is uh, the first part in what fans call the Blood Trilogy. Rounding out the trilogy are 2000 Maniacs from 64 and Color Me Blood Red from 65. Those were both uh, released recently on uh, Arrow Video. Is that right? Arrow, they put out good shit. Yeah, I always like, uh, they got they have awesome like uh, like cover art and stuff, yes. like specialized oh, yes. stuff. Yeah. Especially another good one like that, as we've talked about them before, is uh, Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah. Just has awesome cover art. I love that. Oh, yeah. The remake to 2000 Maniacs with uh, Robert England and Lynn Shea, pretty funny. Isn't it called 2001 Maniacs? I think it is, yeah, 2001 <laughs> Maniacs. I, I seen that, but it was such a long time ago. I mean, it's silly. It's not, like, the best. But I haven't seen that. Lynn Shea's in it, you said? Yeah, she's in it. Uh, Robert England and, um, oh, God, a couple of Scream Queens. Frank Stallone. <laughs> it's like, I don't know why. I just <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> like stupid Frank celebrity Stallone. celebrity siblings. Oh my god. Oh my god. Don't start. There's a documentary on him. Like he's a great singer. 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He sang in Rocky. Yeah, he was in the uh, alley. Like he can do like Sinatra, no problem. He's yeah. like, you'll never find <laughs> a hairline like mine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Stephen King once tweeted, uh, "What is the worst movie you ever saw?" For me, it's Blood Feast. <laughs> what do you What do you think? Uh, what's the worst movie you guys ever saw? Troll Two. Troll Two. Yeah. What about you, Sal? What do you think? The last Critters movie. It was so fucking bad, dude. And I love those dead series, but it was so bad. Well, there, there, I've seen some bad ones over the years, but like Troll 2 is so bad, it's good. I like those movies, though, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. For me, at least, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, come on. Fuck come on. I do kidding? not like Maximum Sammy. Overdrive. It's terrible. Dude, are you kidding? Stephen King directed Absolutely. this. I know, and it's terrible. Dude. He did way too much the green, cocaine. The Green Goblin on the truck. He did way too much cocaine while he was making this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, I know what we'll do. We'll have an ACDC soundtrack. Yes. Who yeah. made who? He called, he called everybody Bubba. Yeah. I don't know. This is one of the only movies I tried to watch it re- recently, and I had to turn it off oh, like three fourths of the way through. When, 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 <laughs> so when the, bad. When the pop awesome. machine was knocking out those yeah. little kids. In the yes, field. yes, yes. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, then the, and then the knife cut that lady up. <laughs> uh, a <laughs> very young Yardley Smith, whose voice of Lisa Simpson. Oh is my in god! Yeah, Maximum she was. She. Where is? Uh, what was the husband's name? Uh, Homer. Something. No, was that Bert? Was that Bert? No, uh, whatever the guy's name was. Like, oh. the, way she, the way she said it, she was so annoying. Her oh, voice yeah. was so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> they were like newlyweds. Yeah, they were newlyweds, and she's the ugliest chick ever. Get back in this diner. Seen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She sounded like, "Eat your fucking slap, boy." <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it Edna or something? Uh, Shit, I've always Carol Lockatell from oh, I Friday think, Five. I can't think of what his name, the husband's name was, and she kept on yelling for him. Yeah. It was hilarious. <laughs> Look at this guy. All right, but much like uh, Stephen King eventually will, Herndon Gordon Lewis left behind a f- legacy far richer than he could ever have imagined. Without Blood Feast, there very mel- well might have never been a Night of the Living Dead, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or a Friday the 13th. So as important as Lewis's influence was to the slasher film, it cuts much deeper to the very core of popular culture and underground entertainment, which is where the misfits come in. So on Earth AD Wolf's Blood, the second and final Misfits album, that was released on uh, December 12th, 1983 through uh, Plan 9 Records, recorded the previous October in Santa Monica, California, this stark nine-song record is a complete departure into the subgenre of hardcore punk that leaves behind nearly all vestiges of the 1950s-style rock and roll that characterized the band's prior recordings. So in 1953, the Misfits released uh, Earth AD and Blood Feast, comes as an interesting moment, either by design or its proximity to many speedier songs, um, as it sounds almost like a pagan ritual. Here, Danzig specifically shines, double-tracking his voice in various places to give it an, an even spookier cadence, and at two and a half minutes, Blood Feast is the album's longest song. Give us a listen right here.
When did they put that one out? That was uh, 1983. Okay. 1983. Not their best one. Yeah, that one almost, you know, blood. that album, Earth AD, is kind of like, it almost like blends together in like one long song for me. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's, you know, it's more speedier. Like, I still fucking love it, but it's mm. like, yeah, it's almost. I liked it. Yeah, it's a departure, definitely, from the rest of their sound, like we yep. said. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Blood Feast. Definitely. Oh, man. Check out Blood Feast. Like I said, it's a. Check out all of H.G. Lewis's movies. Yeah. Two, like I said, 2000 Maniacs is pretty cool. That's a mm-hmm. fun one. That also has, the, like I said, Connie Mason. Um, also, um, I forget the guy's name, but he plays like the detective in Blood Feast is in 2000 Maniacs, too. Oh. See, yeah, Herschel Gordon Lewis was also like an Ed Wood in that he's kind of used the same people over and over in his movies. Yeah. Okay, well, The Psychopath from 1966 showcases a killer that leaves a lookalike doll beside each murder victim. Um, It's hard to surmise what Danzig would have found more interesting about this one. The Gonzo plot or the inclusion of blonde beauty Judy Huxtable as the protagonist who is trying her best not to be the next doll. The tagline for the poster was used for the American title of the movie and is what inspired the song, Mommy, Can I Go Out In? Kill tonight! Kill tonight! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the film scared me. Yeah, the film was originally known as Schizo. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, okay, uh, I seen it. Okay, and was an attempt to capitalize on the success of Hammer Films' recent series of psychological thrillers, such as Taste of Fear, starring Christopher Lee. Haven't seen that one myself. Taste of Fear? Have you? No, don't know that one. I'm gonna have to get on that. so the film follows a detective inspector holloway as he investigates a series of bizarre murders where a doll bearing the victim's likeness is left at the scene all four of the victims knew each other initially from their war service and now the string quartet they formed but are now um but they are all killed in different ways basically um the doll dolls are traced to a disabled woman named mrs von sturm uh, played by margaret johnson who's an avid doll collector lives with her adult son mark um holloway feels uh, he has found the the motive when he learns the four men were part of the commission that discredited von sturm's husband at the end of world war ii he was a nazi a nazi nazi that's right this is a uh, creepy by the way the, the disabled woman they say she's not really disabled it's just all in her mind huh. so you can guess what happens at the end of the movie she walks <laughs> Hello. Yeah, so the, the Psychopath was directed by Freddie Francis, who we talked about in our Slayer, Slayer Santa's episode. He directed the 1972 Tales from the Crypt anthology film and was a famous uh, a cinematographer responsible for the looks of such films as Kate Fear and The Innocents. I like The Innocents. Yeah, The Innocents is a great movie. It had an adaption of uh, The Turn of the Screw. Right. Or A Haunting of Hill House, as it was later remade as. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Mommy, Can I Go Out and Kill Tonight was first released on the Misfits' debut album, Walk Among Us, released in, released in March 1982 by Ruby Records, an imprint of Slash Records. So, um, this version of the song was recorded live on December 17th, 1981, at the Ritz in New York City, and is the only live track on the album. So on July 1983, the song was re-recorded at Fox Studio in Rutherford, New Jersey, and this version was included alongside the track We Bite for the B-side of the Die, 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 My Darling single, uh, which was released in May 1984 through Danzig's own label, Plan 9 Records. So although they were not included on the original LP version of Earth AD Wolf's Blood, all three songs from the Die, Die, My Darling single, including the studio version of Mommy, Can I Go Out and Kill Tonight, 
were included on the album when it was first released on cassette in 1988 and on CD in 1992. Uh, song was also included on the 1986 compilation Misfits, also known as Collection One, which would later be included in the 1996 box set God. entitled The Misfits. Damn, dude. Bo- box sets, EPs. Yeah. It's like, just put out albums. <laughs> That's what we were just talking about earlier is, you know, yeah. like the same fucking song. It was on like nine releases of here. <laughs> there's got to be, I know there's there's a hundred different Misfits, you know, albums or EPs and singles with That's three crazy. or four songs on them. They had to have had. Do they, do they just know. have like a greatest hits or a best of? It's basically <laughs> like collection one yeah. and two, basically. Okay. Yeah, so the song is a retelling of an outcast schoolboy who knows he'll laugh last, regardless of his peers taunting. The turgid opening prologue stamps along before abruptly stopping so Danzig may belligerently inquire, Mommy, can I go out and kill the night? To an eerie silence. Uh, The band then launches into a messy double time as Glenn growls angrily about keeping the toes and teeth of a girl he slaughtered at Lover's Lane. Let's give a listen to that real quick. Yep. So that's epidermati. Uh, epidermati. Yeah, it's like uh, I think uh, it's like uh, supposed to be a cross between like epidermis and uh, something like a scalping. <laughs> Probably a scalping. It's basically like he rips her flesh off, is what uh, it's what it's saying. Like a scalping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's um, part two of the Misfits influences horror business. Yeah. It's kind of more of a slasher blood influenced episode. Stick around, folks. Uh, we've got part three coming up, Walk Among Us. We're going to talk about the science fiction movies that influenced the Misfits. Oh, yeah. There's uh, lots of them. Also coming up in February, we've decided to do Fucked Up February. Oh, We're going to yeah. be talking about gore films, extremely violent films, uh, especially like uh, in the early 2000s, a whole slew of French violent murderous films came out we're gonna be covering that yeah um, we're gonna shit out a book on how to puke interesting uh so yeah we're uh, new things are happening with us um we're gonna be building up that instagram uh of course you know we're on spotify and apple podcast but coming soon facebook we're gonna have a facebook page uh, that way, the episodes will be easier to share, and you can communicate with us on there. There's going to be pictures and whatnot. Uh, it'll be open to the public. And by the way, before I forget, um, you could also, again, listen to all the music that we featured on this episode. I got a Spotify playlist going on, so uh, you could just click on that in our show notes. 
you know, you can listen to some Misfits, you can listen to some Monster Mash, yeah. or you can listen to some <laughs> <laughs> Screaming Jay Hawkins. <laughs> Frenzy! So, again, as we get this Facebook page going, there'll be more info about what we're doing, who we are, and uh, the some event, upcoming events. We'll tell you about upcoming conventions in Chicago and uh, all good things horror. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you for uh, part three of some more misfits. Later. <laughs>